Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within Podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. The temple is a place I've worked at for a number of years, so I can really attest to the quality of the work that they do. Uh, they offer 12-day ayahuasca retreats working in the Shipibo lineage. Uh, the Shipibo are people who've um, had a quite long lineage of working with ayahuasca and various plant medicines, um, working with six ceremonies, four different maestros, corenderos, healers, doctors, two to three facilitators, uh, pre-ceremony yoga teachers, vegetalistas, which are herbalists, bone doctors, massage people, really just a general all around amazing support staff. So <clears throat> if you're interested in working with ayahuasca, if you never have before, or if you're looking to go to a place to really deepen your experience, the temple is a really amazing uh, place to go do that. They've been unfortunately closed since the pandemic started in March of 2020, but they're scheduled to reopen in June of 2021. <clears throat> so if you'd like any information on working with them, you can go to their website, templeofthewayoflight.org. Um, also, myself and my colleague Marav Artsy, who I interviewed a number of episodes ago, will be running dietas, which is one of the traditional ways that people deepen and learn directly from plants. Um, and we'll be running them in the tradition we were trained in, which is working with tobacco and trees. And we'll be running those in the Sacred Valley of Peru starting next month, March 3rd to the 19th, and also May 1st to the 17th. So if you're interested in that, that's a really amazing opportunity. And you can find out more information on my website, nicotianarustica.org, and Marav's site at tobaccodietas.com. All of those links will be in the show notes. Uh, today, my guest is my friend Will Spencer. I met Will uh, when he came down as a guest at the Temple of the Way of Light, and he had a really interesting story. He was about to embark on a four-year journey. Well, I guess at the time he didn't know it would be four years, but on a, a worldwide journey, it turned into four years. And he's had a really amazing experience. I've followed him a little bit on, on his journeys through social media. And he's really just, uh, I think, experienced the world in a really beautiful way. And he's someone who's worked with plant medicines. He's worked with and in a lot of esoteric traditions, which I find very interesting and fascinating. And I always really enjoy speaking to people about those things. Um, and recently he started a podcast called The Renaissance of Men, where, uh, as we talk about in this podcast, he's really trying to create a platform to really teach and and create uh, integrative or integrative or holistic men and and something that he feels really passionate about. Um, I had the chance to be interviewed on his podcast and that was a really good conversation if anyone is interested in that. And he's just a really good guy. I, I really enjoy talking to him. This podcast, I think we went uh, four hours, so it's a long one, um, but there's a lot of really interesting information and, and he has a really, I think, interesting and beautiful way of, of looking at the world and seeing a lot of connections. Connections and, and some of the issues that we're also facing during these times. So I really enjoyed speaking with him. I hope you make it through the whole four hours because I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack and to learn there. So as always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help. Um, as I was saying, the, the temple where I, I work and where many people work and just many plant medicine centers in general in Peru have been shut down for almost a year now. Um, 
So if you're able to help support through this podcast, it helps to support me to be able to bring on these really interesting guests, produce new content, get the show out to a bigger and broader audience. If you're able to help support financially, that's a really big help and very much appreciated. Patreon is a really good way of doing that. It's a subscription service for a small fee. You can subscribe, and with that, you get added benefits. Uh, depending on um, what tier you sign up for, there's things like early access to shows, Q&As, uh, bonus material, extended footage, things like that. So that's a really big help to me, to all the people who have supported me through Patreon. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. There's also the option of donating via PayPal. Um, there's a link in the show notes. And if you're not able to do that, simply subscribing to the show is a really big help. So with the YouTube channel, going on the Universe Within podcast homepage, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, and liking the video. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, because that's still the biggest one, and also subscribing or following and leaving a short uh, review and a starred rating is a really big help. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Will. There's a tradition I work with <clears throat> called the, the Tubu, and they do a lot of work with, with coca, and, and they call it mambe, and they work in these mambiaderos, which is kind of like a mambe circle. And I find it's a really beautiful medicine. It, it really, uh, they say tobacco kind of gives like strength to the word, and, and the coca makes the word sweet. And uh, mm. so whenever they're having a discussion, they always use uh, coca, so it's kind of my way of bringing a little bit of plant medicine into uh into this space awesome i wish i had some to join you <laughs> cool man so i uh i met you originally you you came down to the the temple of the way of light which uh, probably a lot of people are familiar with but if they're not it's mm -hmm. an amazonian plant healing center they they work predominantly with the, the plant medicine ayahuasca which has become you know pretty well known i would say in in this yeah. day and age <clears throat> and um and then we we kept in touch a little bit after that and and you know i was kind of following your story on facebook and you had a really interesting story i mean i think it was like four years you ended up traveling the world and i think that was like the first leg of your journey like the the thing to, to, to start it off so um yeah so just to start you know welcome thank you for coming on uh, i was on your show um <clears throat> i don't know it was maybe a month or two ago something like that something like that yeah and uh yeah it was really good to connect to you so we decided to have you on on, on this show now and um so maybe just to start off uh maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about your background and who you are what got you to the point where you originally came down to the jungle and wanted to work with ayahuasca and then and then kind of how that was the beginning of this journey that led you on this four-year journey around the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'm really thrilled to be able to chat with you. These are some of my favorite subjects to talk about, and uh, my time at the temple was a real turning point in my life. So uh, I tell a lot of people that I meet, uh, I do a lot of work with men, 
And a lot of men are very curious about ayahuasca. They've heard about it, for example, from Joe Rogan or Aubrey Marcus or any number of, of popularizers these days. And, you know, we can, we can get into that. I think that can be kind of a mixed bag, but certainly I've been powerfully affected by ayahuasca and, and, and work with it at the temple in the United States and, and, and with a shaman in the United States as well. And so it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about and, and share. So uh, I'm grateful to be able to speak with you today and share some of my experiences because in the hopes that maybe some people can uh, learn from them and learn more about it from uh, a more grounded perspective, I guess you might say, than, uh, than some of the things that are out there. So uh, my background is I've always been a man who just wanted two things. I wanted to explore my inner world and to explore the outer world. And my inner world expor explorations... Uh, began, I would say, probably in, in 2006 uh, with the death of my mother. It was sort of a very sudden and kind of traumatic experience. And uh, when, and I was living in, uh, I was living in Phoenix taking care of her at the time. And, uh, and I had an apartment back in San Francisco. And when I returned to San Francisco after that experience, uh, I was a little wobbly. You know, I was able to hold it all together to get her business taken care of uh, after she passed away. And, but when I got back to, when I got back to uh, the city, I found that I could manage life okay, but I was having trouble controlling my emotions a little bit, and I would have these crazy spiraling kind of thoughts. And, uh, and I had been talking to a therapist in Phoenix, and she recommended I try this modality called uh, EMDR. I believe it stands for eye movement uh, deprogramming and reprocessing, something like that. And that was my introduction to what we might call inner work, the, the, the inner depths of the psyche down to the level of where root trauma is stored in the body, self-limiting beliefs, where they really, really live. And um, for those who aren't familiar with EMDR, uh, it's similar to hypnosis. Um, it's not exactly the same, but you hold a paddle, a little vibrating paddle in each hand, and there's a headset, and uh, the therapist or the facilitator has a little dial. And so the headset will beep, and the paddle will vibrate, and then the other side, and it goes back and forth. So beep, 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 back and forth, and it stimulates. I don't know exactly how that it works, but the facilitator then controls the speed of the beeping back and forth and it induces a what you might call a, a semi-hypnotic state. I don't know that, whether that's a, a medically accurate term, but it'll do for the purposes of what we're talking about. And guided with the proper facilitation, it was able to take me, and I know that it does for very many people, deep into the depths of my psyche to find where, as I said, those self-limiting beliefs really lived. And there was very clearly a moment in the session where it was kind of like that movie, The Abyss, where I'm standing at the edge of the, the cliff. If you've seen this movie, it came out in the, I believe in the 90s, a James Cameron film, where Ed Harris's character is wearing this suit, and he's getting ready to jump off the cliff down to the very bottom to handle a situation that I guess has evolved down there, let's put it that way. And I remember very clearly walking up to the edge of my own psyche in this way and leaping and discovering what was down there and, and uh, being amazed at the depths of my, of my own mind. Not in any kind of like, my mind is so deep kind of way, but the depths of the mind, let's say. And so that was my introduction to inner work. And so when I was in San Francisco, obviously that's a great place for all different kinds of inner work. So I participated in uh, many different kinds of therapy, you know, obviously individual talk therapy, men's group therapy, 
past life regression, uh, body work, uh, Rosen method body work. I basically, I, try, I tried it all. If I, if, if I could find it, I, I tried it. And then in, um, and I managed to continually over that process over the next, say, five to ten years, um, continually keep exploring the depths of, of the mind and releasing all of this stored trauma that had built up in, in, in my body and built up perhaps during my lifetime, previous lifetimes, genetic trauma, where does it all come from, right? And then in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2015, uh, I had just ended a, a very unfulfilling relationship that I, was, that I had trapped myself in. Sort of, hopefully some of the people listening can relate to the experience of being in a relationship and feeling trapped and unable to leave. Uh, and I had, through the liberation of myself from my trauma, I was able to leave this relationship. And as you do in San Francisco, I said, oh, I'm going to Burning Man now. And so I went to Burning Man. And on, on burn night, uh, uh, which would be on Saturday night, I went out to, uh, just went riding my bike out into the middle of the desert and sat down in a, in a hut way at the edge of the boundary. And I said, okay, whoever shows up is who I'm supposed to hang out with tonight. And maybe uh, 20 or so minutes later, a kid shows up. Um, his name is Dustin, and we start talking. And he's like, have you ever heard of ayahuasca? And I said, yes, I have. And I'm not so sure about that. He's like, well, if you're ever curious, I know a shaman in, in San Francisco. So I followed up after Burning Man, and that was my first experience with ayahuasca. It would have been in uh, November 2015. Uh, with three nights in uh, in the Bay Area with a shaman, with a shaman there, and that was my introduction to this kind of medicine work. And I'm very grateful that I was prepared to do it. So when I finally, and as I, as I said, I, I started this out by saying that I've only wanted to explore the outer world and my inner world. And so I spent ten years exploring my inner world, and finally was able to liberate myself from all of the external constraints I had spent years saving and had uh, some circumstances that made it possible for me to begin exploring the outer world, which is why I decided to sell everything that I owned and try and backpack around the world, which is what led me down to Peru. And my experiences with ayahuasca made me realize maybe I should give this a shot. And uh, I, at first it was like, you know, I, I, I'm in Peru and that's what everyone does. They go do ayahuasca when they're in Peru and I'm just not going to do that. But then I realized that, well, you know what, I'm down here. I might as well give it a shot. And uh, a close friend had mentioned the temple to me and I had heard about it separately. So I was in the area, I was in the neighborhood, had a couple months to go. So I applied and was accepted and then I arrived and it was a, a beautiful experience for me. And so that, that, kind of that desire to experience ayahuasca you, it was just kind of a natural progression of this inner work that you were doing and you felt like there there was some sort of answer that that, that medicine could could help to provide you to go deeper into that process yes or I was ready I was ready to try um, I never I never had the impression of I had not been exposed to ayahuasca through, it hadn't been popularized yet. This is 2015, so there was no, at the time, I, maybe there were podcasts talking about it, but, you know, I didn't know about any of them. I had, um, I had friends that were deep into uh, various kind of uh, medicines. I mean, living in the Bay Area, it's just part of the culture there. So I had heard about it, and I was a little scared by it, because the way that people had spoken about ayahuasca was, uh, and I wrote about this on my blog, they sort of talk about it like 
like it's a force of nature, like a tidal wave or an earthquake or something like that. That was always the tone that people referred to it in. So I was a little intimidated, but I had done enough inner work to know that I was prepared to go to the places that it was going to take me. And so, yes, it did seem like a sort of logical, like a logical um, next step for me to continue my own healing and transformation. I was you know, of course, intimidated and, and, uh, and, but I, you know, the one thing I will say about the shaman that I work with is they were very clear about the preparation protocols and it was a very traditionally held ceremony. So, um, one of the things that I tell people now is, you know, when you're given instructions to get ready, you know, for a ceremony, even one, do them all, (laughs) do them all. (laughs) Don't skip, don't skip out on that. Um, because I wanted to approach it with, um, the proper reverence, because if it was a force of nature, and I believe that it is, then it deserves to be approached with a sense of reverence and respect and, um, and, and caution and honoring in the way that we do that is, I, I believe you said this in our, in, in our podcast together, you pay with yourself, you pay with your effort and your effort to prepare. And that's how, of course, you, you pay for the ceremony, you know, in, the, in a commercial sense, but the way that you pay for the gifts that uh, you'll receive from the medicine is to pay with yourself and your efforts to get ready. And I did that. And I was very happy that I did that. So what was that experience like for you? And, and just a kind of a caveat to my question is <clears throat> obviously these, these experiences are very personal. Yeah. You may want to share, you may not want to share. And, and for anyone who's listening who, who maybe hasn't worked with ayahuasca, you know, it, it's it's always really important not to take someone's experience and then extrapolate that that's how their experience is going to be because it's so unique. It's you know, it's it's completely unique. We're we're all unique individuals, and so everyone's going to have a unique experience. But I always think it's really interesting, <clears throat> you know, to some degree to hear people's experiences because, you know, it was something we were talking about in our podcast, which which I, I think you you did really well, which was this idea of, of kind of I forget the word you use, but uh, I think you said demystifying or, or kind of grounding some of these experiences, because often yeah. what one's here, what one may hear when, when talking about these plant medicines are these very kind of extraordinary experiences, <clears throat> which can certainly happen. But mm-hmm. those are often the ones that are talked about because they're so grandiose and, and kind of so illuminating. And mm-hmm. then people naturally kind of chase after that experience thinking that that's the experience that these plants are inherently leading to mm-hmm. and that's not always the case that that may be the case but that's you know it, there, there's many many ways that these plants can work so I had the opportunity to facilitate you but so you know I, I know a little bit about the, the process you went through yeah. but, but just kind of to share maybe with the broader audience what that experience was like and um, mm-hmm. you, you had you had worked with ayahuasca a little bit before then, so I, I would imagine you had some sense of what you were getting yourself into. But then also mm-hmm. being in the Amazon, working with <clears throat> the Shipibo people who have a a quite long lineage of working these plants, and and just that set and setting and working with it in the group setting, and and you know all of the other things that that entail with that. What was what was that process like for you? So, do you want to hear about my time at the temple or my time in the states first? Or both, I suppose. Well, yeah, whatever, whatever you feel called. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I'll say that my first ceremony in November of 2015, because I came down to the temple and it would have been May, June of 2016. 
I got really lucky in a way because I was seeing my therapist. Uh, the, the ceremonies were Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, so th- three consecutive nights. And um, I was seeing my therapist on Thursday and did one of those uh, doorknob kind of moments where it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm, uh, I'm drinking ayahuasca for the first time tonight. And his face like, you're what? <laughs> that, that would have been something that would have been good to know any time prior to right now. But um, he actually ended up, he had been someone who had worked with ayahuasca as well. And he gave me a really good piece of advice. And uh, he had said, you set your intention and when things get very rough and chaotic, you hold on to that intention as a rope that will pull you through the experience. And that was basically all he had time to say before I had to leave. But that was all that he needed to say. And because when, you know, I took the first dose and of course, you know, it's, I think of it a little bit like riding a bike in, in terms of you have to kind of learn how to navigate yourself, oneself in the, in the space. But there were times where, of course, where things get very chaotic, and I've heard that people say, like, oh, my God, am I dying, and stuff like that. And I can't say that I had that experience, but if, if, if I hadn't had the knowledge to hold tight onto my intention and allow it to be a rope to pull me through, I might have felt that way. Uh, so that was a really important thing, you know, when it's like, what is going on? Everything is going crazy. Everything has dissolved. My psyche is devol- dissolving. What did I come here for? Boom, grab hold of the rope, and it just pulled me, pulled me through the experience that first night. And, of course, the next morning, and let me say that the shaman I work with was deeply, deeply traditional, had trained with Shipibo masters in uh, South America for years, actually was... Um, I don't know how much I can say, but let's, he was born down there and uh, had brought those traditions into the United States. I've since heard that there are, uh, there are shamans or facilitators that take a more modern approach, I suppose. Uh, and uh, I, was, I felt very lucky to have, done, have worked with a shaman where we worked in the dark, in the sacred silence, in the stillness, you know, very, very, you know, no, no uh, recorded music, <clears throat> all uh, singing and traditional instruments. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that I felt was very, very grounding uh, to not have it be you know playing sort of new age floaty music. It was at, at night, and I've heard people doing it during the day, and people moving around and allowed to express themselves vocally, and that just sounds terrifying to me. Um, just because everything is, yeah, it's just that would not work for me anyway. Um, so I felt very held and very safe in the space, and. All the practitioners, they were a family. Many of them would come back month after month, so they all knew each other. There, were, there was the, the shaman himself, and I believe that there were at least five co-facilitators holding the space. You know, it, was, it was at a private house that they had you know, up in the hills, and it was very, very, very well done with prepared food, like home-cooked food provided, and it was like you can show up and you don't have to leave, and everyone knows each other. It was like being welcomed into, the, into a family which was the perfect way to go about the medicine and to have every other external consideration stripped away so that the only thing that's needed to focus on is the work, which I feel like that was an enormous blessing for me to find that family. So uh, I think the most memorable experience of that first set of, um, that first set of, uh, I guess you'd say, ceremonies was... um, 
I had gotten to know uh, the woman who was sitting next to, who was lying next to me on the ground. We were all on our mats. Rather than at the temple and being spread apart, we were all much closer together. We basically had our mats, you know, maybe 35 people in, in the room, which was quite a lot of people, but it never felt crowded. It was just, you know, the most uh, people they could fit in the room with integrity, I suppose. And I had gotten to know her, and she had brought these crystals with her. And I'd never much explored crystals before. And she said, well, if during the night, you know, feel free to use these crystals for anything. I'm like, I don't know what I would use crystals for, but you know, hey, we're in the space. Let's go for it, right? So, you know, my experience of ayahuasca, and again, thank you for pointing out that if anything, ayahuasca is predictably unpredictable. So any experience that any of us has may not ever be anything that you personally experience, right? So it's just everyone's own unique journey in the way that our lives are a unique journey. So uh, in, in the middle of the night, going through these waves, you know, of down into it and then back up and just taking a breath and sitting up and gathering myself, I picked up uh, these two crystals. There was a very large sphere of rose quartz, and then there was a smaller, you know, sort of this big kind of crystally shaped thing that I think was a smoky quartz, as I recall. I'm not sure if those are the, the rose quartz I remember clearly, but then there was like a smokier kind of crystal. And so I was lying on my back and I wanted to change positions. And so I took the crystals and I just put, I rested them on my belly so I could use my hands. And when I put the crystals on my belly, it was like, ow! Like I felt actual energetic pain in my body, not because I had dropped them on myself, but because the, because something happened uh, energetically in response to the physical contact of the crystals. And I was like, what was that? And so in the expanded state of awareness, I had this sort of sense that there was some energy within me that the crystals were drawing out. That was the feeling. It was a feeling like when I put the crystal down like a magnet, it's pulling something up out of me. So this was maybe my second or third ceremony or something like that, probably the third. And I remember lying there and thinking, okay, well, I guess I can use these crystals. And I had no experience with crystals before in my life. You know, I know people who are into crystals and stuff like that, but it's not something that I had ever explored. Uh, so here I am lying there in the middle of the night in the dark with these crystals and re recognizing that I can use them to pull energy out of me. I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is just what I'm doing right now. And I spent the next two to three hours pulling 25 or 27, something like that, energetic shards, I guess you would say, or uh, needles or something like that. Out of, out of my gut and belly area. So I would take the rose quartz and I would move it around on my belly until something would connect. And then I would use the rose quartz and the other the smoky quartz to, and maybe you can't see me doing that, to sort of pull, to sort of pull the energy out like a shard, like a needle. And every time I did that, um, I would say thank you. Because for whatever it was that was within me, I needed to have that in me for some reason. And so this process took, you know, two or three hours of really working with myself to pull out these shards of energy, very vivid. And the image that came to mind was as of a lion pulling needles out of his paws. There was some, there was some element of me that was hindered, crippled in some energetic way by what was contained within my body. And I spent those three hours pulling those out. And over time, I sort of came to realize that um, these were genetic lineage traumas inherited on my, the, the male side of my family. Uh, and so I was healing potentially, I mean, uh, you know, 27, 25, 27 
ancestral woundings that I had carried with me. So with that sort of experience in mind and knowing, you know, what becomes possible with a sense of experimentation and a sense of um, openness to experience, uh, you know, I came into the temple and uh, was so thrilled to find that the intention that's held in the temple, because I know that there are other uh, centers in Peru, Blue Mofo was the only one, Morpho, Blue Morpho was the only one that I've really looked into. I didn't particularly like their... um, branding and um, I didn't I, I didn't feel that um, it was as connected and grounded as the materials that I saw at the temple because I went scouring through the temple website like what is the intention of this place that I'm going to be giving my life to for for 12 days like what what are they about you know is this uh, is it really because I had come from this really beautiful you know high integrity, high high respect for tradition family in San Francisco and so when I found the temple website I went through all the materials and I'm like yes this is this is the place very ground in the traditions very respectful of the Shipibo people um, I really appreciated that uh, they used uh, uh, women uh, female curanderas as well I, I appreciated that that the the innovation and in that I guess you'd say in a way and so I was when I arrived there I was so happy to find that it's just you know, it's out in the deep in the jungle. There's no power except for maybe like some solar or something like that. You know, uh, in the in the kitchen perhaps. But certainly the cabanas don't have power, and you get a little light, and you know, there's no obviously no cell reception, and you know, it's just really, really, and there's no. Well, there's there's the compost toilets, and it's like really, really back to earth. Really, the opportunity to connect with the land. I was like, this is yes, this is exactly. Whatever else happens here, you know, regardless of what happens at night, just the, the feeling of being out there in the jungle was just so incredibly relaxing. And it was the perfect space to do to do any kind of work, you know, whether whether ayahuasca or not, like just to be out there and just even to sit and do like talk therapy would be amazing just to take off everything in the background and just to be able to sit and be and hear the sounds of the jungle and, you know, smell the smells and and enjoy the humidity in the air and the sun. It's just the, it was just the perfect environment. So I was thrilled with, with what everything was like during the day. And the experience at night, which you know, we'll go into, but the experience at night you know, with the ceremonies was so beautifully held you know, by yourself and the other facilitators. And, and I, I call, the, I call um, the maestros and the maestras the shamanic all-stars of Peru. <laughs> You know, it's just the be- it's literally the best of the best, and um, I, I I couldn't be happier with my experience there from from really from start to finish. And I will say, um, I appreciated that I had that there was an application process, that there was a rigorous application process that I had to fill out. Like it took me a couple of days, you know, to answer all the questions honestly because. It gave me confidence going in that everyone who was there would be there for the right intention, and that yeah, that that was I mean that's just something that isn't often talked about. It's you know who are these people? Why are they here? And are are they going to be in integrity in this container with me? Because we're all journeying together, and so when you put you know you put the skill of the facilitators together and yourself, and and you put the environment together with the application process. It really was the ideal experience, just on the, the top level, and so that's why I'm, I'm always so happy to talk about it. We can, uh, I went on for a bit there, but we can use this video as a, as a promo video for the temple, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, 
You know, one of the interesting things that I think is always very fascinating is I think there's always a lot of, you know, maybe doubt or kind of there's this there's this sense of the unknown when when one goes down to the jungle and what am I getting myself into? And I think I mean, because, you know, I also originally came as a guest and Mm -hmm. one of the things I found very interesting and also very comforting was the 22 or 23 other people who were there. And, you know, I, I had all sorts of thoughts in my mind of, you know, who are these people? What are they going to be like? And it was it was very comforting in a way, just seeing that, oh, they're they're just like me. They're just they're, they're mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if normal is the right word, but we're <laughs> less normal people and, right. and all kind of looking for for a similar thing. Um, mm-hmm. So when when you when you went through that experience, is there anything that that, that stood out for you, like from your own experience, from from gauging, from, from being in that space with these other people, um, was it was it a different feeling that you were used to from when you were working back in San Francisco? Was there like a theme there, or was it just a, it was a continuation of the same work you were doing? Oh well, the work the work that I was doing in, in Peru was definitely um, was definitely very different. I'll, I'll get into that, but I will say that the space that was held in the United States and the space that was held in Peru were very similar. In fact, I felt very, very comfortable. Like, oh, this is, this is familiar. You know, maybe no instruments necessarily. Like, I think there was a mouth harp that he used and, and, various, um, and various plant, like, like fans and stuff like that to create sounds. And there were, the, the temple didn't have any of that, but it was still this feeling of, no, we are embedded in an ancient lineage. And that's what I thought was really exciting about the temple. It's like, oh, I'm familiar with this. Cool, you know. Um, and you're right. I, I agree. Also, that who are these people? And I was really surprised to find that yeah, they were normal people. Like it wasn't you know super crazy new age people, you know. But that just people from Middle America, people from I think there was a guy from who had come from Eastern Europe. You know, people who would you'd otherwise never think would participate in ayahuasca. But you know. That you know, grandfathers and and pe- tech people from San Francisco. It was a really nice mix of of just really down to earth people who for whom ayahuasca is, was brand new for them. Like it's not like the first self work that they'd, they'd ever really done, as opposed to you know seasoned veterans, I suppose you'd say. And I found that actually to be really to be really comforting and really beautiful. Um, and it was a real for me. It was very powerful to witness the healing potential that ayahuasca has for so many modern uh, illnesses, so many contemporary uh, illnesses that people experience that they're returning to their, I guess you'd say plant-based roots um, to find curing for them in this ancient wisdom, just a very powerful um, juxtaposition. So the work that I did, uh, the work that I did in, in San Francisco, um, I, you know, I don't remember, I, I would have to look back on my journal to see what my intention was at the time. Uh, I did write it down, did a lot of writing at the time, but I don't remember as clearly as what I wanted to go to the temple for. And um, so some context is, as I'd said, I'd liberated myself to backpack around the world. And um, that was my intention. And, um, you know, I'll just be, I'll be very honest about, uh, you know, about this and in the hopes that it'll, benefit people who are wondering, you know, what ayahuasca could be good for. Um, a big component of my desire 
to travel. And I think one of the big appeals, um, one of the big appeals of travel in general is not just uh, not just adventure in terms of doing adventurous things, which I've gotten the chance to do, but adventure in terms of in terms of romance. You know, we watch movies like Indiana Jones to see. Uh, the hero go and you know punch Nazis and you know swing off vines and and get the girl and that's the the archetypal image of the hero adventurer and that was what I wanted from my experience traveling and I don't think that's unusual at all but I had I knew that I carried with me these really mistaken attitudes and perspectives about women that materialized in a form of fear and some of these fears were. Uh, political in nature, let's say. They were, uh, I am a patriarchal oppressor, oppressive male, and I shouldn't make eye contact with women, and I should, I should keep, you know, I should just be respectful. Oh, yes, yes, and be subservient in a way. I carried some of those attitudes. Um, many of them, in fact. Uh, I had just a lot of fear of uh, women's abuse, um, like verbal abuse, shaming, rage, anger, things like that. And I recognize that these attitudes, completely independent of you know, any amount of romance I might want to have, I recognize that these attitudes were fundamentally destructive to my being as a man, uh, that they weren't serving me, that they cut me off from a whole half of, not only a whole half of humanity, which happens to be women, but also my own inner nature as a man, as someone who loves and appreciates women. And so walking around in fear of every other person I meet and walking around in fear and, and disrespect and almost uh, division from myself and my own desires was really, was really extraordinarily painful. It was really, really painful. Um, so I had my objectives from my travels, but I also had all this, I guess, trauma that led to these warped perspectives on women, sex, sexuality, masculine sexuality, um, uh, love and romance. And when I arrived in South America, you know, I, had, I went through Argentina, Peru, and I had been to Colombia as well before I came to the temple. I saw that the attitudes in South America are towards men and women and sex and sexuality are very, very different than the United States. They had found that a lot of the women down there were wondering why I wasn't being more forward, more masculine. Why, why am I being so nice all the time? Like, come on, you're a man. Like, I'm a woman. Like, you know, if you watch like salsa dancing, you know, salsa dancing, it's very dramatic, sexualized, you know, uh, movementized, I guess, sexuality, you know, and that's, that's the interplay between the divine masculine and the divine feminine, lead and follow, and this, this beautiful, elegant dance created by people stepping into their full sexual power in their bodies, I guess you might say. And I wasn't able to do that dance, because I had all these terrible ideas that were uh, put into me, I guess, uh, from my culture and from my upbringing that I had absorbed passively that were just kind of there and that prevented me from participating in that dance. And so as I wanted to, as I felt called to. And so I came to the temple with the intention of, I wanted to, I think the way that I articulated it was, because I didn't, I mean, obviously I'm looking at this in hindsight and I have a lot more understanding of what I was going through. But I would say that I, all that I was able to know at the time was I wanted to improve my relationships with women, was what I said, um, without really knowing 
anything beyond that, what was actually what was actually going on. And it was a real big, it was a real big uh, step of ownership for me to step into that and to say, okay, yeah, no, this could be potentially very embarrassing to speak to. I don't know that I had to speak it to the entire circle of 22 participants, but I certainly had to speak it to you and to the, and to the curanderos and the curanderas and to say like, yeah, look, like, this is just not working for me. And to be, to be, uh, to acknowledge my own desires and to speak that. And also to really go into the heart of where my own pain was to say, I'm fully divided from myself. And this division that I've had in myself has caused me pain for decades and it's unhealthy. And I, and I know that it's beyond my conscious ability to heal. I can't just talk it out. There's something that lives deep inside me, something very painful that is past language that needs to come out in experience, I guess you'd say. So I spoke that into existence and, um, I, you know, I can talk at, I can talk at depth about what happened over the next the seven ceremonies, but I, I will say that I got what I came there for. And, uh, one of the things I appreciated the most about the temple was the way that uh, you guys provide such great preparatory materials, not just how to prepare physically for the, for the experience, but how to prepare, I guess you'd say, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. This idea of intention and intent. I loved that distinction, and I still use that distinction when I talk to people about any number of things, to say, what is your intention for coming down there? What do you want to get out of this experience? That's your, set your intention. And then your intent is you will not quit until you, you agree to yourself, you will not quit until you get it. And I loved that. And I loved that. I said, this was so important to me. This is what I want, and I will not quit until I get it. And those two things, more than anything, more than anything, helped me over the next 12 days to, to really do the work, you know, when it got tiring or disorienting or frightening or exhausting, you know, by the, by the seventh ceremony, like, please, I just can't drink this anymore. I just literally cannot drink this, but, you know, just like, just knuckle down and do it. You know, I thought that was really important. So I'm very, I'm very, um, a big fan of the temple because, um, obviously I did the work to show up, um, and, and, uh, and did the work in general, but the space created this environment that made it as easy, easy as it possibly, as it possibly could be. And it was, that's why I say that it was such a transformative experience for me. Um, and it, it positively affected uh, the rest of my life. And I guess I can get into the, some of the things that happened over the next seven days, over the seven ceremonies or 12 days in general, if you'd like. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. <clears throat> Because I think in in that experience you're describing, there, there there's a lot of archetypes, and and that from from what I've seen, I think so many people. One of the reasons they come down is you use that word split, and and I think many people feel that that there's a split, and and I, I think you know in more archetypical terms, that's what so many of these spiritual traditions are pointing towards is. Mm-hmm there's this idea of union of wholeness and the idea of separation of, of, of duality of, of the world made manifest is this idea of a split that we've been split. We've been split from our source, from our creator, from, from our mother, from the womb, from what some people may describe as their, their, their true self, their, their self beyond name, beyond form. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a fascinating thing. And, and I think people describe it in all sorts of different ways. You know, it seems like for you, there was this very 
very acute observation of, of hey, uh, the, the split for me is is between this masculine and feminine, and there's something that I'm not connecting to. And for some people, it may be a split between their 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 mother, their father, their 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 partner, the work, their their sense of purpose in life. But mm-hmm. it's a very very common theme that I see, which is this idea of split. I, I mean. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I can necessarily make generalizations, but it could be that all experience to some degree is coming from that archetype, from that archetype of split, you know, separation. Mm-hmm. We're all looking for that sense of, of union, of unification. If mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, especially someone who who maybe hasn't worked with some of these plants before, that sounds amazing. That, that, that someone like yourself could come and experience the the healing or the insight to that. But I think a lot of people, it would be very difficult for them to kind of put two and two together and say, well, how, how in the hell does drinking this plant, mm-hmm. <laughs> drinking this liquid going to make me rectify my past or, or, or you know, understand these things that I've been with, or or these 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 traumas or these belief systems I've had. So, is there a sense? You know, you, you can talk about your experience if you like. Mm-hmm. That that'd be wonderful. But but even if you don't want to get into the details, maybe just a sense from your experience of of what you felt that the plant was doing that that allowed you to somehow come to terms with that. Because, and I think for a lot of people, especially if people have worked with plants, they may have some sense of, of what's going on. But if someone's never really worked with plants, that seems like a very, almost like amazing thing. Like how, how in the world would drinking this liquid, does it take me on a journey? Is it, is it bringing up images? I mean, is it just do I see the light and then everything is clear and I'm good? <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, maybe you know, from, from, from your experience, what, what, what were some of the things that were going on for you? Well, I can, when I explain what ayahuasca is to people and what it does, this is usually what I tell them. The, f- the first thing that ayahuasca kind of requires is an understanding that there is a spiritual dimension to reality. And that's a really, that's a simple idea that I think a lot of people listening kind of take for granted, but it's really important to just really, in the words of uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, to really grok that. Like, here we are in material reality, and, you know, here's a, here's a coffee cup, it's pretty solid, you know, and everything seems pretty clear and grounded, and it's like, well, if you were to flip that around or look within it, there's this enormous universe of spiritual reality, and that is real. It's real. You know, there, you can't, I don't know that you can be an atheist or an agnostic and drink ayahuasca. Like, you're, if you want to see the two best and most reliable paths that I tell people that I've found, if you really want to know, not a faith, but know that there is a spiritual reality, is drink ayahuasca or go to a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat. And you will know. You will know. You can't give that knowing to anyone else, but you will know for yourself. So I meet a lot of people that are like, yeah, no, I don't believe in God or spirituality. I'm like, well, if you ever really want to check that out and find out for yourself, these are the two roads. You can, and I've, I'm working on a, right now, it's what, 12,000 words article that's comparing ayahuasca and Vipassana because they have a lot in common. Um, that's maybe a separate 
conversation we can get into later. But if you don't, ayahuasca it happens to require a, a bit of money, a fair bit of money. So if you don't have money, um, you can spend time, which is Vipassana is free. Going to Vipassana retreats are free, donation-based only at the end. You don't have to give a thing if you don't want to. So those are the two ways you can pay, with your money or with your time, to go and see for yourself that there's a spiritual dimension to reality. So we will just take for take as given between you and I right now for the purpose of the conversation that there is a spiritual dimension to reality within that spiritual dimension to reality there are beings of all different uh, levels of evolution and intention um, so I've heard the seven dimensional model of reality is pretty I don't know let me know if we get too esoteric I don't know I can get I, I mean I've, I've thought a lot about this but you know so we live at the third dimension of reality the uh, animals are at the second dimension of reality. Uh, I think plants are at the first dimension, and then rocks or rocks and stones are there. But above us goes all the way up to seven dimensions of reality, and the seventh dimension is unity consciousness. That's where that's where God would live. So above us are the fourth, fifth, and sixth dimensions of reality with beings of different levels of evolution. The plant spirit of ayahuasca lives at one of those levels of evolution. I can't say which. And f- this plant has as its telos as its purpose seems to be as far as we know to help facilitate human evolution and transformation and the drinking of the ayahuasca brew of course has psychoactive physical effects with the presence of the dmt in the body but it's also an act of consent you say to this plant spirit that on the dimension of reality that it exists on you consent to the plant working with you at the dimen- at that dimension that you live on. So the plant is able to look at, you say yes, like going into a doctor's office, and uh, you say yes, I give you permission, doctor, to to look to to examine me and to and to um, help facilitate my healing. And so that's the process of the drinking. It's a it's a commitment, right? And uh, the plant and you open up. The plant opens you up in a way energetically, and then performs various, I guess you might say, forms of energetic surgery, which is not really the best way of thinking about it. That's just one of the processes. And there's all different things that in, the, in that expanded sense of awareness where this process is going on. It's not surgery like we would think about it, like allopathic, where a, a doctor is going in with a scalpel and stuff like that, though that may happen. It's more a process of experiencing within ourselves energies moving that had previously been stuck for the purposes of exiting our system. So we, we as humans are a closed energetic loop system. Like um, animals, for example, when animals experience trauma, you know, like a car crash or something like that, you see a dog get out of a car crash, like shake it all off. That's the trauma energy, the trauma response escaping from the animal's body. I think there was a book by this author, Robert Sapolsky, called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. <clears throat> explains why animals have this trauma release system. Humans, unfortunately, don't have that. We can store trauma in our bodies in a closed in a closed system unless we experience the ability to open up and release that trauma, to open the system up. And there are many ways to do that. Like I said, all the different therapeutic modalities are, are great at that. It's whatever works best for you. I'm, I'm good at talking, so I really succeed with talk therapy. Other people prefer art therapy or dance therapy or body work, whatever creates an exit for the trauma to release from. And so my experience with ayahuasca is allowing the plant uh, to work with the depths, the the full depths of my energetic system to be perceiving me from a higher plane of reality than I can perceive myself and to help facilitate the removal and release of trauma. And where people get stuck, I think, 
is that it doesn't, ayahuasca doesn't come in and just grab it and say, okay, I'll take that, thanks. There's a, there's a process of it can come to the surface, but then we have to release it. We have to consciously release it. So that's why there's no, my experience anyway, there's no magic wand. The ayahuasca doesn't wave a magic wand over you and say, congratulations, you're healed. There's a process of bringing up from the depths of being things that are very ancient, perhaps as old as our infancy or older, and it comes into our conscious awareness and we are left to experience it and acknowledge it and see it and then, and then release it. And that can be very, very scary. That can be very, very scary. Things about ourselves that we don't recognize are true, that we're forced to reckon with. And that, I think, is a very important part of it because that triggers, um, a, uh, I was going to say, a crisis of faith. Um, but I don't know that crisis is the right word. But it's certainly a recognition that why did this happen to me? A real encounter with why is there suffering? That's the real, that is the real question, is to really deeply experience. Of course, I don't want to make it all sound like suffering. There are moments of profound beauty and peace and transcendent visions of the cosmos that happen that I have been blessed to have. But the meat of the ayahuasca experience is in the encounter with suffering itself and the recognition of the purpose of suffering. And that is incredible. I'm feeling myself emotional talking about it. That is incredibly profound. And it can, it can be very, very, uh, very, very powerful in a way, as we say, of integrating to say that suffering has a purpose if we're willing to find out what it is. And so uh, that's what I, uh, that's a bit more than I usually say to people, but this idea of ayahuasca allowing us to encounter the sufferings that live within us, to bring them up, to experience them, to release them, and to grow spiritually as a result. It's a pure encounter with the, the Jungian notion of the shadow, the way that the shadow contains the gold. That when you go in and you encounter the shadow uh, and you really confront it and are, in a sense, in the, in the Joseph Campbell hero's journey sense of it, you are victorious over it, the shadow reveals, reveals the gold. And the, the gold is, for me, you know, I don't, without at risk of oversimplifying it, the gold is you survived. The gold is whatever trauma that is you're carrying, you survived through it and it taught you an important lesson that you can now own. And so I've got my own experiences of that. And so that's how we end up growing as the human being is to encounter our shadow, to overcome it in the supportive environment of the plants, not just the ayahuasca herself, himself. Well, I never experienced ayahuasca as a woman particularly, so I know that that's the vernacular is to describe ayahuasca. That's never been, I've never experienced a gender either way, and I've looked, but we'll say she. And then the, the plant allies and the curanderos and the curanderas and the facilitators such as yourself, like your presence was very strong, you know, sitting on the sitting on the mat, smoking tobacco, just really holding this very grounded space. I remember very there were times where I would be disoriented and I'd see you there smoking and your face lit up by the by the end of your cigar, I think, or cigarette or whatever it was, and it's like, oh yes, okay, Jason's there, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna be okay. You know, and the singing and the jungle and the space, and it's like the perfect environment to, to really to do this work in. And so um, that's a lot of what I tell people. Maybe I'll simplify it based on the conversation, but you know, the, real, the real meat of it is to be, able to, um, to be able to have the aid of a being that exists in a higher dimension of reality to perceive us and help us, like a doctor would, see, you know, see ourselves in a particular way and, and 
help us to heal ourselves, which is the difference between allopathic medicine, which you know seeks to go in and address the illness, indigenous and and, uh, and traditional medicine seeks to help us realize that we are actually the cure. And so ayahuasca works in that way to help us see how we are the cure and gives us the opportunity to be that. Yeah, beautiful. You you mentioned this this idea of you you're interested in other esoteric traditions. What are mm. what are other things that you you find interesting? And do, do you see that they're all kind of pointing towards the same thing? They're they're approaching things from a different way. I mean, even it looks like in the background is that a, a Tibetan mandala? Um, yeah. 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 What some, are, uh, some Tibetan healing bowls as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Uh, what, what interests you about those esoteric traditions and, and, and what do you, what do you, what do you feel like they're, they're also trying to teach and would you consider ayahuasca an, an esoteric tradition? Would I consider ayahuasca? An es- I think so. I would say, um, I would say I consider it an esoteric tradition in terms of it's specialized knowledge and specialized knowledge about the nature of reality and the human mind is not something that everyone has interest in. Not everyone feels a call to understand why does my, why, what is the mind? What is the soul? Why does it work this way? What is the nature of reality? Not everyone, you know, is interested in that, but not everyone, some people are really interested in cars and I'm not interested in cars. And it's like, this is just our own particular callings. So it's, I would call it esoteric knowledge in that regard, and I think every tradition around the world has people that are called to understand reality in that way, and different traditions um, in different environmental and historical circumstances look at the same set of data and process it in slightly different ways and may also be looking at different, just fundamentally different pictures of reality. Like, that's the really unclear thing. Like, is there one true religion, you know, in the, in the you know, perennial philosophy sense? Or, you know, are there actually different religions that are true? Who knows? So I think it's esoteric knowledge in that sense. But I think where it transitions from being purely esoteric is that it's actually very practical for the living of a good life. And so um, the esoteric tradition that comes to mind that I've studied that I've found as of most practical value is studying uh, the tarot and the Kabbalah, which I did for a couple of years prior to prior to my travels overseas. I studied the tarot and Kabbalah every day for two years. And tarot cards are conventionally understood to be fortune telling uh, tools. And as it turns out, that's not why they were invented. Tarot cards are actually symbolic depictions of aspects of human and divine consciousness that um, during the rise of the Roman Catholic Church um, was considered forbidden knowledge. So they took this, this ancient knowledge and they put it into pictorial form to kind of to preserve it. So people would look at it like, what's this? Oh, it's just a, it's just a drawing as opposed to like a, a sacred text. So Tara was a way of preventing the knowledge from being lost. And so I studied that and that was a wonderful introduction to the workings of the human mind and the universe. And so that was the one, that was the one esoteric tradition that I've drawn the most benefit from, but it was not just for the purposes of studying it, just for intellectual pursuit. It was by learning how your mind works and goes to create your reality, uh, you know, create your, your existence. You can get better at using your own mind to lead a better life in the spirit of service. And so that's, you know, that was very powerful for me, uh, one esoteric tradition. I've also uh, meditated, 
early in the mornings and, and uh, I don't practice of contemplation, which is the focusing of the mind on a singular object to understand it uh, more deeply or to take apart a problem. I think that tends to work a little better for me. Um, but again, that can be a real gateway into understanding how the mind works and how reality works. And those kind of traditions, I've always felt called to. I mean, always just fascinated by it. Like I grew up, I grew up Jewish. I went, you know, I read the Torah, I read the Ten Commandments was my Torah portion, which is like a major score. And then I went to a Jesuit Catholic high school. Like I said, I studied tarot and Kabbalah. I've done Buddhist meditation and ayahuasca. Uh, you know, I went to, when I traveled, I went to the Kumela festival in, in India, which I think is like 200 million people, the largest gathering of Hindus on earth. Um, all these traditions I've been so fascinated to explore. And I've actually got my, I've actually got a, um, here, I'll just take, I'll take it down. It's behind my computer. Um, I don't know the name of it. It's one of those woven patterns from, uh, from one of the curanderos at, um, at the temple. I've got it hanging up behind my laptop. Mm-hmm. So, these things I've always been interested in and, you know, but I, I don't, I'm not just interested in them. And there's a lot of this in San Francisco. I'm not just interested in them in intellectual pursuits. I'm really curious how they make life better for me and, and for, and for humans. And I think if you're, I think that there is room for people who would take a more monastic existence to be exploring the frontiers of, of spirituality in a purely Intellectual is not the word, but we'll use it anyway, purely intellectual sense. But I'm much more interested in how do we bring this knowledge back for people to, to for me personally, to live a better, uh, more whole life. And how do I pass that on to the people around me, uh, you know, my children, my community, my country, my planet. So that's, that's always been my interest. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating because you you use this idea that that a lot of these esoteric esoteric traditions are are an investigation in into the mind into human nature, and uh, I think that's sometimes something we forget because mm-hmm. again, often it's it's this idea of you know this you use this word monastic. There's these monks in in a cave or isolated somewhere and they're off doing something, but it seems very far removed from the reality that most people are in. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think what you're, you're pointing towards is really important is this idea that, that all of these esoteric traditions or investigations are into the nature of human existence. What, what does it mean to be a human being and, and mm-hmm. how to live our lives? And even, even <clears throat> a lot of the, the, the cultures we come from, like, like in the U S or European cultures, have this root we, we often say in in in, in Greece and in, in the Greek mystery schools and these people like Pythagoras and mm-hmm. and you know it, allegedly he got his knowledge from the Egyptian mystery schools and you know who knows where they got you know Toth and who knows how far back it goes but right. um, you know I, I think something that was very fascinating when I was when I was doing some research about him was. I mean, that's even where this idea of, of like a liberal arts education comes from, is it's how, how can I expand my mind? How can I learn about all of these things and see the interrelationship with them? Mm-hmm. It, it's, not, you know, very much a, 
in a way of like a, a general practitioner. It's, it's, it's not that we're so specialized in one thing, it's that we have a broad understanding of things so that we can see how things are interconnected and, and how we can be a better person. And I think with Pythagoras, you know, he would make people, he would make his students wait like two years before they could even come and they'd have to do all of these practices. I think maybe they had to be in silence for that time. And then when, wow. when they came, he started teaching them these things. But they were things that we may not think of as like esoteric, but they 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 were. They they were mathematics, uh, astronomy, um, you know, science. The, the 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 understanding nature, understanding cycles. You know, all of these things. And it seemed like he was trying to form complete human beings through the understanding of these things. And mm-hmm. it's one of the fascinating things about. Even the word psychedelic, because uh, it was a word I used to have a lot of aversion to, because I pictured mm-hmm. you know people dropping LSD and dancing and you know listening to right. music. But but even that word, it it means the mind revealed, the mind made manifest. Really, and so it's and you know many many people will describe these medicines as medicines of the mind that it's mm-hmm. taking us into this this journey of our mind. So we, I, I guess with, with these, these esoteric traditions, how do you think that, that by, by studying that, like something like, like tarot you use, for example, mm-hmm. how, does that, how does that help someone by understanding these symbols, by understanding these archetypes, how does that transform then to, to practicality about actually putting that and, and, and changing my, 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 my daily life? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind for that is imagine anyone listening or you and me, you and me, or certainly if you were to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is like really no that there is a spiritual dimension to reality. How would that change the way that you lead your daily life? Because we're so saturated right now, at least in America, with materialist, not materialist as in consumption, though there's that too, but materialist, all materialist science, scientism that says all there is is material reality. There's no spiritual dimension and, to anything, and, uh, and that's that. And the danger of that idea as practical as it can be for improving our lives technologically, is it robs us of a sense of meaning of the events of our life. If there is no spiritual dimension to reality, if there is no higher dimension to reality, then there's no purpose to anything. And if there's no purpose, then there's no meaning, and the events of our lives are random. They're random. Or they're either random or they're deterministic, as in it was supposed to happen from the beginning of the universe just as this mechanical kind of thing that took place for billions of years. So the thing is, humans are meaning-making machines. Our brains are designed, I think, to find meaning in the events of our lives and our collective events as well. And if we live in a deterministic or random universe, where is that meaning? It doesn't exist. But if we live in a universe with a spiritual dimension to reality, that meaning comes down into manifestation from that higher dimension of reality. And in that situation, everything has meaning. Everything has meaning. The most senseless, 
hurtful, harmful, and difficult things. And there are, of course, theological arguments against this, which we can get into. The most senseless and hurtful things in our lives actually have meaning. As hard as that may be for us to really accept that, acknowledging a spiritual dimension of reality means that our lives are pregnant with meaning. Every event in our life is pregnant with meaning, the best and the worst. And personally, I find that to be incredibly comforting. I find that knowledge to be incredibly comforting to know that and to have validated this through years of practice. And this is the unique power of ayahuasca for me, that the most difficult events of my life, the most hurtful ones, I started out the conversation talking about my my mother's death. That was by far the worst thing to ever happen given the circumstances. And the circumstances of it, there was violence involved and everything. That ended up, for paradoxically, truly paradoxically, becoming the doorway for the greatest things ever to happen to me. The greatest blessings came in through that door. Would I go back and change it if I could? Yes, absolutely. But it's not to me to change these things. It's not to, it's not to question the past. It's to use these circumstances to find the meaning of it and to transform and grow as a human being. And that is created, that knowledge is created by knowledge of the spiritual dimension of reality to things having purpose. It's not random. It's not deterministic. It's purposeful. It's written. It's authored by who and what we can talk about because that's a separate conversation, but it is authored. And I find that to be very comforting in studying these esoteric practices, drinking ayahuasca, meditating, studying the tarot or, or Kabbalah, or engaging in whatever esoteric practice calls to you, including dozens I probably don't even know about, is a gateway to discover that meaning. And, and by putting it into daily practice is to reaffirm that amidst the seeming senselessness of everything, there is actually a higher purpose and meaning to it. But that's the nature of faith. Faith. I choose to believe that this has meaning. Like even Steve Jobs said, you can't put the you can't put the pieces together looking forward. You can only put them together looking backwards. You look back over the road of your life, it's like, oh yeah, I ended up I made these choices and I ended up exactly where I was meant to be, and there's a rightness to it. So you can't look forward and say that, okay, I can see how it all fits together because you don't have all the pieces yet. But faith says that each of these pieces does have meaning and you'll be able to assemble them later if you stick with it and you don't give up. So I engage in these practices because it helps reaffirm that the events of my life, the events of our collective lives do have meaning. And that I think is at the root, at the root of the spiritual crisis that we're all living through right now is we're living through a a pretty, uh, I can choose lots of words, but I'll go the most neutral as I can and say we're living through a very challenging moment as a species and as a civilization. And why? Why are we going through this? Why, uh, why are we, as awake, aware, conscious, thinking, questioning people, being put into this extraordinarily difficult, frustrating, ambiguous situation that seems to be escalating in all of those dimensions? Why? We can say for no reason. We can say, oh, it's you know, it's just the direction that humanity is meant to go. I don't know. Or we can say, no, this purpose of this moment is to make, and this is the communities of men that I've been very fortunate to find myself in 
and to uh, I've been very blessed to be able to contribute a lot to is to say the purpose of this moment, the purpose of this suffering, let's call it, is to make us better. Is to make us better, and that has been true for you know my entire life for all the things that I've been through that have uh, that have been my forms of suffering. I've using the power of faith and meaning have used them to make myself better, and. I, paradoxically, I could have only made myself better through that suffering, and that is that is the purpose of that is the purpose of suffering. And if we want to engage in a full theological discussion about that, we can, because obviously there are at the very at the very limits of, of, of human suffering, of which can get pretty extreme. There is a valid question to be asked, like what is the purpose of that, and then we can get into that. But we can certainly say that for the majority of the suffering that we experience as as humans on Earth, there is a purpose. There is a purpose to us, and faith, faith gives us that. And so that's why I engage with these esoteric practices to help reaffirm for myself when I'm tempted to be overwhelmed by the materialistic, uh, reductionistic wave to say, no, no, I do not consent to that perspective. That is not me. That is not who I am. It's not who I've ever been. I continue to believe and continue to have faith. And that gives me strength to stand up against um, many, many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a really common theme, uh, I think, in in traditional, you know, in, in in culture all over the world, what we may call more traditional cultures, was this idea of of the cyclical nature of time, and mm-hmm. and in a way of, of the the human of, of societies of time of space, and if we look back i i mean i think we can even see that in in relatively modern history of these these the the age of the renaissance which is interesting that's also the name of your your podcast uh, mm-hmm. you know there was a renaissance there was there was a, a a flowering and a time of great openness and inquiry and inquiry and change and mm-hmm. and and actually a, a, a longing and appreciation of these what we now call esoteric practices mm-hmm. of, of the nature of what it means to be a human being what is the nature of the human's place in the cosmos and it, you know interestingly that was followed by the dark ages <laughs> where there was just a destruction of, of all of these things of a very rigid way of looking at the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and some would argue a, a, a reductionist way of looking at that, a materialistic way that, that, as you put it, there is no spiritual dimension. And, and it seems like, however, why these things work, which again, I'm sure there's, there's many ways of looking at that. It seems, you know, also through this idea of, of suffering, which you mentioned, especially now, <laughs> exacerbated by everything people are going through. But, but I think, in a way, things have been leading up to this. Right. These, these, these conditions that that many people are dealing with, and they're things that I think often aren't talked about. But things like anxiety, depression, lack of purpose, lack of connection, isolation. Uh, you know, lack of relationships, uh, love relationships, family relationships, friend relationships. It seems like these esoteric practices that you're describing are, if not 
the remedy, certainly a remedy to, mm -hmm. to again, begin to look at the nature of what does it mean to be a human being? Mm -hmm. Because as you said, if we're only looking at the world through a materialistic way, that if I get this, then I'm going to be happy. And then I get that and I'll be more happy. And then, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is just to have these things and be in these positions. But inevitably, most people, and it's not to take away those things, because they are important. You know, we want mm -hmm. comfort, we want a sense of stability. I mean, that's, that's one side of the coin, which is very important. But the other side, I think, as you're describing the spiritual dimension is equally, if not more important. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine in some of your travels, you've seen that. I mean, from a, from a materialistic point of view, very often you see people who seemingly have very little. And yet, if we talk about it in a spiritual sense, they seem very complete, very happy, very whole. And it's not that they don't have problems, mm -hmm. but there's, there's a sense of wholeness there. And often that seems to coincide with a real inquiry into what is the nature of happiness? What is the nature of wholeness? What's the nature of, of being a human being? And often there is a spiritual ailment in those people of, of looking into themselves, looking into the nature of reality and seeing things from a, a broader perspective of, okay, maybe I only, maybe I only have this, maybe there are only these things, but on a deeper level, there's something more and I have access to that. So, do you do you see that that you know because again I think it's interesting that you use this word renaissance. Do you do you feel like we're in this period of a renaissance that that these plants like ayahuasca, these esoteric traditions? I I mean I, I think a number of years ago I, I read that the best selling author in the U.S. was Rumi, which I found fascinating. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, there's a there's a there's a desire that people are having to connect to these things so do you think and and i think you said it really well and it's something that this work i think really points to is this idea of suffering while suffering sucks <laughs> nobody wants to suffer right. but that's often the thing that 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 in a way forces us to go into these esoteric practices or or simply put what is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people want to know, why is this happening to me, to someone I love, to us as a species? Why? That's the big question. And where do you go to find that question answered? And you can go to the scientists, and they will give you, you know, a bunch of materialistic causes, say this, this, and give the numbers and the data. And there is uh, truth in that. There is truth in that. But that's only one side of the truth. There's another side of the truth. And that truth lies in spirit. What is the spiritual why that this is happening? And that can make people uncomfortable because it's not like a, it's, it's, it's not like a math problem where there's one right answer. There is an intuitive sense of knowing that you land on for why such a thing is happening and you land on it and maybe it's not totally comfortable, but it still feels right. And someone else may come in and say, why are you thinking that? That doesn't make any sense. And then holding to that is, can be very difficult in the onslaught of everyday life to hold on to that spiritual sense of knowing. And there's a lot of bias against people who are spiritually minded these days, especially um, there seems to be an onslaught in some ways. And I believe that there, I believe that there has been. Um, 
But acknowledging that truth and finding it of only for oneself brings such a profound sense of comfort uh, and strength to people. And I, I don't think that that's up, that's up for debate. I think we can argue about um, the sociological impact of people having different faiths and the potential conflict, the historical conflicts that have come about by different peoples and different faiths colliding and the way their worldviews seem irreconcilable. We can have that discussion. But on an individual level, when someone is of true faith, it brings them a sense of strength and groundedness and stability that's able to radiate outwards into their into their immediate environment. Whether that be a particularly religious grandmother is the image that's coming to mind, you know, or uh, a curandero or a monk or, you know, just, just someone that we know that just seems to be someone that is able to express something in art of some higher truth that comes from their faith. These people are able to extend, extend a sense of spiritual strength to everyone around them, and that comes from their faith. It, and, and they have their own doubts as well, but faith is the assertion, the assertion of belief and purpose over doubt. It's like, my doubt says that this, this doesn't have purpose, but no, I reassert and I flex this muscle inside myself to say, I choose to have faith. And then that flexing of muscle, like when we're, when we're physically strong, we're more capable of serving those around us in a physical capacity. And when we're spiritually strong, we're more capable of serving those around us in a spiritual capacity, which I believe many people desperately need right now, desperately need. And so you talk about the Renaissance. I think it is absolutely unquestionable, unquestionable that for the past hundred years, humanity is going through a profound awakening. And I'll give you, and you mentioned a great example, Pythagoras. If you wanted to become part of a Pythagorean mystery school and learn Maybe not even from him, maybe after Pythagoras passed away. So you wanted to become part of his mystery school and learn about his teachings. You had to come from wherever you were in the world and walk across the planet, and then you had to sit in silence for two years and pass all these different initiation degrees just to get to walk into the school, and then maybe they start teaching you, and then you spend the rest of your life mastering this material until you can reach the highest level, and then congratulations, you've learned the, the truth. Okay. The stuff that Pythagoras taught, and the, like the stuff that Thoth taught, the, the, the emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, and, and all of these things, and the tarot, and ayahuasca, and all the stuff, you don't have to fight for it anymore. It's a click away on your laptop. You can get on a plane, you can fly to Peru, and you can, you can participate in an esoteric healing tradition that was buried in the jungle for thousands of years. And there's no barriers to you doing that. Do you want to know Pythagoras' entire, entire thing to the point that humanity knows it? Go to YouTube. You want to, you want to participate in deep esoteric uh, uh, meditation practices? You can buy a book. You can follow someone on Twitter. You can go to a retreat. All these things, these knowledge about human psychology, spirituality, mysticism, esotericism, all the stuff that was buried and hidden forever is now just right there on the surface. It's, in, it's, it's around all the time. And so for me, I look at that and say, a lot of people look at the, we were talking about, what you, you mentioned whether history is a cycle. And I think that there's a lot of, um, tension right now between this idea that history is cyclical, which is the more uh, indigenous and, and tribal worldview from around the world. So even the Norse pagans, for example, believed in a cyclical worldview because you look around at the natural world and it proceeds in cycles, right? So it's natural to draw that conclusion. Um, Western philosophy tends to take a more linear view of things. 
uh, with with history having a beginning, middle, and an end. This is particularly reflected, for example, in the in the tradition, uh, Christian tradition that is looking towards a sort of sense of of, of end times, right? So the creation and uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the end times. So that's linear. That's a linear story. So which is it? Is is history linear or or is history cyclical? Well, I think it's I think it's kind of both. Uh, in in some way. But certainly, as we're looking at this moment and saying that from a linear perspective, never has a time been in human history where this much esoteric knowledge was available almost effortlessly to so many. If you want to know, like I said, know about the spiritual dimension of reality, the two most reliable paths that I've found, um, that doesn't, that's not to say there aren't more, but the two that I found are ayahuasca and vipassana both of which are available. There are hundreds of Vipassana centers around the world. Go and you sit for 11 days. Tell me how you feel when you come back and we'll, we'll, we'll have a discussion. But so if you want to know, that wasn't available to most humans 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But right now, you can put on Joe Rogan, put on the most popular you know, media thing, I think, property or whatever in all of human history, and he'll talk about ayahuasca. Right? You can't, it's in the New York Times and The Economist. It's everywhere. This is unique in all of human history that this much esoteric knowledge is available to everyone. And we take it for granted. <laughs> we take it for granted. <laughs> Stuff that people like imagine, you know, a student trying to get into Pythagoras' mystery school a couple thousand years ago. Imagine what he had to go through. Or the Kabbalah, like imagine, you know, or the tarot, someone smuggling a pack of tarot cards, you know, past a, you know, past some sort of guard or something like that. Oh, I hope he doesn't steal this from me, you know, so I can pass it on to the next guy until the time comes. We don't have that anymore. You can go to uh, Builders of the Adidim, bota.org, and you can sign up for their 15-year-long 15, 15 monthly correspondence course, and you can study all this stuff. It's you know, for what, 20 bucks a month or something like that. So this is absolutely unique in human history. And so that's what I tell people. So we are living through a profound awakening. And if you look around or you, you know, read the news, don't read the news, but if you do read the news, it would seem that the exact opposite is true. So how, how do we, how do we reconcile this fact that some sort of human renaissance is happening? I'm an example. You're an example. There are probably hundreds of people listening who are example, and they know hundreds of people as well. How do we couple that with what seems to be going on in the socio-political sphere? I don't know. <laughs> and that's the big ambiguity. That's the faith that says, okay, it's getting harder. I must have to get better. <laughs> that is the best answer that I've got. <laughs> I wish I had a better one. It's a fascinating thing, too. I, I, yesterday I was listening, um, and maybe we can talk about this more, because I think you're also interested in martial arts. And I was yeah. listening to an interview with uh, Francis Ngannou, and he's, uh, he's soon going to be fighting for the, the heavyweight title of the UFC of mixed martial arts. And oh, wow. he's this big, big dude. I mean, just a, a physical specimen. And he was on Joe Rogan, who you just mentioned. And it was very humbling listening to him. Uh, because he grew up working in these like uh, sand mines, you know, mm. he, he was a kid and he had nothing. I mean, truly nothing. And every day he was going, he couldn't even afford the school books and he was working, you know, day in and day out. And, but listening to him there, there wasn't a sense of, of regret or, or anger. He actually looked at the world 
through this lens that that that's what gave me the idea to have a dream to get out of that you know and now he's created this life for himself through through his own hard work and dedication where you know <laughs> i mean it was amazing he was saying that you know like i'm flying back to the us now to america which is my home mm-hmm. and i have a house and you know i'm 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 able to give back now and just sheer humility, even in the way he spoke. I mean, he, he's learned English in the last couple of years and he's almost speaking fluently, you know, wow. and there was just no sign of, of like being a victim. And I think for most people, it would be very difficult to even imagine those kind of circumstances. And so I think kind of to your point, it seems like we are in this, this strange stage of, Perhaps for most people, our lives have become so relatively easy in a way. And and that's probably going to be triggering to a lot of people because it's not to take away that we all suffer. You know, everyone has their own, their, their own, you know, from a Christian point of view, their own own cross that they bear. But like that could potentially be part of the Renaissance too, is that our lives have become so easy in a way, so complacent that the, that these very, you know, simple things that most of us take for granted. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's one of the things that, that I really appreciated being in the jungle was, you know, one of the things I'm doing is I'm constantly fixing my roof because <laughs> it's, it's this, you know, thatch roof. And, and if I'm not fixing it or someone else isn't fixing it, it, when it rains and it rains a lot in the jungle, then mm-hmm. when I'm sleeping, I get wet. And that's something I think most of us don't take for granted. And it's, it's this saying that we even have in English, you know, to have a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. What an amazing thing. And yet how many people really appreciate that roof that's over their head? How many people appreciate that, you know, for the most part, when they, when they turn on their tap, water magically comes out and it's water mm-hmm. that you can drink again for the yeah. most part there, there there are some exceptions right uh, <laughs> one one kind of notable case a few years ago but you know for the most part it's it's a water you can drink uh you, you flip a switch and these lights magically come on you mm-hmm. you go to the bathroom and it just kind of magically disappears uh, you know, in the jungle, we or someone else is is carrying these buckets of shit. You know, it's very visceral. Like it doesn't yeah. just go somewhere. It's work to to bring water in. You have to go and get water. You know, these yeah. really simple things. So, what do you what do you think is that balance? Because it seems like on the one hand, our lives are very easy, and yet on the other hand. A lot of people are suffering, but they're they're maybe not suffering in the ways that that like Francis and Ganu were suffering. They're suffering in these ways of this lack of purpose, these anxieties, these these not feeling at peace. You know, as you described it, there's this there's this split, the separation. And what's also fascinating is sometimes I think we take those things to be like new phenomena, like oh well, this is ju- this is just something we're having to live with now. And yet, mm-hmm. as you're saying, these esoteric traditions were pointing to these very same things thousands of years ago, that humans were still dealing with these very same things. Mm-hmm. And then also to, to the point you brought up, which is 
you know, even 50, 100, 500 years ago, just finding one tradition may be like a miracle. Like, wow, now I have access to this thing. Whereas Mm -hmm. now we have access to almost everything. So I think also a lot of people are struggling like, where do I begin? Like, what is, what is real? You know, even with a lot of social media and technology, there's almost like an anxiety that's created from an, an overabundance of, of material and information. And, and I think a lot of people feel kind of lost, like, where do I even start? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, I, I, that's kind of a big question, but, but maybe no, no. a lot of that is, you know, that duality of is life too easy? Is it too hard? Is there too much information? Is there too little information? And, mm-hmm. and, and how to, how to begin to navigate that? Well, I think I, I hear this a lot, um, you know, listening in the, in the world of, I guess you'd say male, male personal development, which is where uh, my brand, the Renaissance of men is there are a lot of men in this world um, and we'll get into it uh, later, I'm sure, who say things like, your life is so easy, pull it together and recognize everything that you have, right? And there is truth to that. But what I think is less obvious is that people in the West right now, while they are material, materially more prosperous than any people in history, even, and this will definitely trigger some people, even People we consider poor in this country, of course not homeless, but people we consider poor have televisions and, like you say, running water and electricity. I mean, these are things that poor people, authentically poor people around the world, lack. You know, I've been to some outlying towns in Mongolia and some places in Colombia and and, uh, the nation of Vanuatu, the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu, some outlying uh, islands in that archipelago. And, you know, they don't have television or, or power. You know, they, they are subsistence farmers, right? And so, you know, we're, we have this distorted notion of what it means to be poor in many ways. There is reality to it, but certainly there's a degree of material prosperity that we are blessed to have, very blessed to have, that is ahistorical in its scope. And thank God, thank God for that. But that material prosperity comes with a crushing spiritual burden a crushing spiritual burden. If I could use a bit of a vernacular, I would say that unbeknownst to us in the West, certainly in America, I can't speak for Europe, but it seems it's probably true in Europe as well. Unbeknownst to us, we have uh, in effect made a deal with the devil and we have sold our souls in exchange for material prosperity, which is the only thing that anyone ever sells their souls for. That's what you sell your soul for. The, the, the devil, and, and I don't mean to make a theological argument here, I'm, I'm speaking, uh, I, can, I can go into the theological dimensions of it if you'd like, but let's just say that I'm speaking metaphorically right now. The, the devil is materialism, the, as, in, as in consumerism, as in buying things, and of, of having physical stuff. And we sell our souls when we give what is spiritually priceless in exchange for what has a defined material price. And in the West, we have sold our souls, our spiritual, our emotional and spiritual well-being. And this deal was made long before any of us were born. We were born into the deal. We, we, our society sold its soul. Again, I'm speaking metaphorically, but I can also speak theologically if you want. Sold our soul for, for this material prosperity And so now many of us in this modern age, even before 2020, even in 2019 and before, many of us 
like you said, we're feeling this depression, this anxiety, this alienation, these feelings of what does it all mean? Maybe I'll just buy more stuff to make myself happy. That is indicative. You can have a mansion. I've, I've been very blessed to do um, men's work with groups like the Mankind Project, um, uh, which is a wonderful men's organization. And I would see, um, I would work with men very often who would have Mercedes and Mercedes Benzes and nice clothes and <clears throat> the expensive watch and all that, but were so spiritually impoverished that had no sense of who they were as a person, who they were as a man, but they had all the things and they had all the toys. And certainly that's not unique to men. There are many people that consume various things. You know, it doesn't even have to be material possessions. It can be food. It can be video games. It can be pornography or alcohol who consume these material things to try and numb this or, or medicate this spiritual pain. The spiritual, the spiritual burden. And I think that's something that now we're becoming very aware of is the spiritual poverty of the West. How does, and the esoteric traditions, all of them, I think can begin to reinvigorate, to, to recreate some spiritual, some spiritual wealth in the West. And that's why I believe that they're a value because you can recognize that okay, I have gone to the end of the road of acquiring material possessions and found, as Buddha taught, there is no satisfaction to be found in the material. You must look to the spiritual for satisfaction. And so now we're having this awakening, at least in the West, which is the culture that I'm familiar with, of the need to begin acquiring spiritual wealth. And what does that mean? And as you've seen, and as I've been blessed to see, there are people who have uh, in the world who have very little materially, but have this great wealth spiritually. And, and I don't know that it's one-to-one. -one. Uh, certainly there are, there are monks who are called to own nothing at all and are spiritually very fulfilled, but not all of us are called to be monks. The rest of us are called to live somewhere in the balance of how much material stuff do I need in order to be comfortable, to manage my household and my family, and yet also to not be burdened by the material and to be spiritually free. And for those of us who aren't called to the, mon the monastic path, that is our task to find that balance in ourselves independent of anyone else anyone else's guidance because if as soon as we turn on any screen at all that screen will attempt to convince us that we need more material things than we actually do and so there is a process of separation of going away of reconnecting with ourselves internally with finding those sources of spiritual wealth cultivating them which requires faith and then using that knowledge that we've cultivated to say maybe I'll begin pushing back on the material in just a little a little way Maybe I just maybe I don't need that. Maybe I don't. Maybe I can I can read a book instead of watching the show on Netflix that all my friends are watching. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try and drink a little less. Maybe I'll go to the gym a little more because exercise is not just you know about the materialistic pleasures of it. It's about the spiritual cultivation for many men that I know myself included. And so I, I think when you speak about this UFC fighter, you know he was forced to discover and cultivate spiritual wealth within himself to triumph over materially poor circumstances. His life, his upbringing, his unique character gave him that opportunity. And he was able to use that spiritual wealth to become fit and powerful and dedicated and devoted and disciplined. And he was able to then use that spiritual wealth to create material wealth for himself 
But what's beautiful about him, as you say, is that he never lost sight of the value of everything he has around him. Like, I live in America. You know, I have a house. I grew up with nothing. And he hasn't lost himself in the material, which is really, really beautiful because obviously it's very easy to do that as well, to cultivate the spiritual wealth, to use it to improve your material circumstances and then get lost in the material circumstance. So you go from one form of unconsciousness to the other. But it sounds like he's been able to hold his his integrity, I guess you might say, and hold his character. And that's if we're going through anything as a civilization right now, you know, uh, as, as men and women of the West, for those of us who have been spiritually impoverished, as I know many are, to begin cultivating those sources of, of spiritual wealth, because I think as we're all seeing, the material world has the very distinct plans for us that are not for our benefit. And I, think, I would imagine that anyone who's listening to this is sympathetic to that idea at the very least. So, um, so I, and I think that's why the, this moment perhaps exists is to um, guide us. I was going to say force, but that's not the word. To guide us further inward to discover sources of, of spiritual wealth. Because it's with spiritual wealth that we begin pushing back on the increasing demands of the material so when you when you left the temple, I, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong, but but that's when you started this uh, I believe four year journey uh, around the world. So what was what was the the driving force behind that? You mentioned you had been doing this inner work, and now you were you were curious about the outer world. So what was the what was the what, what, what was drawing you to to go on that journey? And did you have an idea it would be that long? Was that a goal you set for yourself? And, no. and then what, I mean, I, I know it's, it's hard to, you know, talk about or even wrap four years in, in, into a short conversation, but what are, what are some of the things that, that you took away from that, that you learned from, uh, from going to all of these places? Cause you know, that's something mm-hmm. I, I also did. It wasn't four years, but it was two years. And, um, you know, it, it was it was often very fascinating because people people would would sometimes ask me like, how did you how did you manage to travel around the world for two years? And you know, mm-hmm. I think I left with just over a thousand dollars. I mean, I, I think it, you know that was back in two thousand seven. So there, there's been a little inflation, I guess, since then. But <laughs> um, but what was funny is you know, I also, I didn't have a plan. I thought I would just be gone for a few months. It was kind of this serendipitous thing where my roommate was South African at the time and she invited me to go to South Africa. And I, I happened to get fired from my job at that point. And, you know, I found a really cheap plane ticket and I went there and then I, I found another ticket to Bali. And then from there, I just traveled over land or over water and it turned into two years. And you know, I was very careful planning with with how much money I had. And but the fascinating thing is I was never very worried about it. And at the end, I actually came back, which is crazy. I, I, <laughs> I came back with more money than when I started with, you know, but it seemed like there was something. And I know this may sound weird for some people, but it, it seemed like there was something that was allowing me or allowing that journey to unfold. And not that it was mm-hmm. free, not that it didn't take work. I mean, you know, I was, I was sleeping mm-hmm. outside a lot of times. I was, you know, eating on the street. It wasn't like, you know, peachy rosy. I wasn't staying in, you know, five-star resorts all the time. But it felt like there was something that was kind of holding me or supporting me in that journey that was trying to teach me something. And, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, you know, travel is one of 
And again, it's not everybody's path. You know, none of these things are universal. Some people are drawn to it. Some people aren't. Some people just love being in their house. And and that's a beautiful thing too. You know, Mm -hmm. we can learn. I used to date this girl and she was asking me about that travel. And she, at, at the end, I was telling her all these things and she was like, yeah, that's amazing. She was like, I feel like I can learn all of those things just from my garden. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer for that. That's probably true. But, but, you know, obviously one of the things that I think that is very beneficial about travel is it in the same way of plant medicine is it begins to expand our consciousness and not in some, you know, weird new agey way. It's just, we see things from a different point of view. Many mm-hmm. of the beliefs or patterns that have been ingrained in us, we're forced to confront those. We're forced to question those. We, we see people living in different ways. We see people have different values. Uh, we, we begin to put things in a more relative perspective. And, and I think that's hugely beneficial because I think so much of our pain and suffering comes from these very rigid belief systems. And I think most of us, we don't even realize we have them. They're just, as you mm-hmm. said, it's something that's ingrained in us. It's something that we, the, the way we've been brought up. And when we remove ourselves from that, when we kind of put ourselves out there in, in, in kind of this, this, this openness, this expanse of, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I, I don't know what the next day is. It, it's not a routine per se something begins to shift in us. We, we begin to open and see life in a different way. So yeah, I would be curious, you know, cause four years is a long time. There, there's probably mm-hmm. very few people who've really done that and, and what that meant to you and, and what are some of the things you took from that? Well, my desire to travel was born, well born, I don't know that I can say that it was born, it was always a part of me. And the first time that I discovered it was actually Y2K, year 2000, that New Year's Eve. My sister took me to a rave here in Phoenix. And I was visiting at the time, I I didn't live in Phoenix. Went to a rave and she gave me uh, an ecstasy pill. It was the first time I'd ever done I'd, first time I'd ever done drugs, really. I mean, I'd smoked weed before because I lived in California, but it wasn't something that ever agreed with me. That was the first time I'd ever like taken a pill. And I remember, you know, the great depths that my mind expanded to that night. And I, um, I remember having this really clear sense that came out of nowhere that I wanted to see the world. Now, my family never traveled. We never went anywhere. Travel was not a value of of my family or my extended family. Never really been anywhere. It wasn't something, as I said, that I grew up with. And it wasn't something that I felt lacking either. It wasn't like, oh, mom, dad, I wish we would go to Disneyland or I wish we'd go here or there. Like, I never grew grew up with it. I never grew up wanting it. But then suddenly... On this, on this expanded state, I realized that there was this desire within me to explore, explore the world, and I didn't put it there. I don't know where it came from. It was just, it was just a part of me. And for the next fifteen years, I, I held that desire and continued following that path, and never, never released it, never let it go, never gave up on it, never made any decisions that would. Um, compromise my ability to do that. So there were times when I wanted to get married and have kids. And I knew that doing that 
wouldn't allow me to travel in the way that I wanted to alone. And there were some definite times where it's like, wow, should I just give up on this? Should I settle down? Should I make these decisions? Or, you know, I lived, I lived in San Francisco and rather than living, for example, in a nice apartment downtown where people would live, I lived out on Treasure Island, which for those of you who don't know, the Bay Area is an island that sits in the middle of the Bay Bridge, which connects Oakland to San Francisco. It's a formal naval, former naval base. Um, where they converted the housing from Navy barracks into uh, sort of townhomes. So I lived where the, where the officers would have lived, and the housing was built in whatever, like the 1930s or something, the other 40s. Most of the island is abandoned. Well, it's all torn down now because they're redeveloping it, but at the time, most of the island was literally an abandoned Navy base, like rotting warehouses and you know, fenced off things of machinery and like, you know, super industrial, almost like post-apocalyptic, like parts of the island literally looked like, like you'd see in The Walking Dead, like quite honestly, you know, most of the island was dark and, you know, it was very isolated. And if you didn't have a car, you had to take a 24-hour bus and 50% of the people who lived out there were Section 8 public housing. So it's not a nice neighborhood. I loved living there. I, you know, I, I loved my place. It was very quiet and I had, you know, had like a peekaboo view of the, of the city skyline and gorgeous sunsets and everything. Um, but certainly, like, I could have lived in nicer places, but I lived there for 12 years for 12 years. And, you know, I, I saved and I made decisions that um, never compromised, as hard as it was, that never compromised on, on my opportunity to travel. So that when 2015 finally came around, that I went through this big break, this big shift, it was really a process of, oh, wow, I have the, I have, I've been blessed with the means to do this. Do I have the strength within myself to claim the thing that I say I've always wanted. Here is the opportunity in front of me, and I have to say yes. I have to say yes to it. But saying yes to it will cost me, when I say cost me everything, I don't mean in this dramatic kind of way, you know, cost me my life kind of thing, but like, no, I'll have to say goodbye to everyone I care about. I have to say goodbye to everything that I've invested in in San Francisco, all of my belongings. I'm not going to keep my furniture or my car. I'm, I'm, I may actually traveling lose my life, you know, for circumstances far beyond my ability to choose. That's the risk I choose, I choose to take. And, um, you know, I looked at that situation and said, this is, this is what I've always wanted. This is what I believe I'm actually built and, and when I say designed for, you know, when I, like what I'm actually made to do, it's, and I, okay, I'm going to do it. And so what I described it is I pushed, I took everything that I had and I pushed all in. So I'm all in and I will stick with this until uh, I can no longer do it anymore or until I get a message to stop. And when I started, you know, I thought I'd be gone for like, nine months or a year, you know, no big deal, right? Well, as I continued following the path and following the thread, um, just going where my intuition guided me, yeah, it, it ended, up, ended up being four years, much to my surprise. And as a matter of fact, and here's how, how wild things can be sometimes, I left San Francisco on March 21st, 2016, and I moved into this apartment that I'm in right now, formally concluding my journey four years later on March 21st, 2020. Like it was exactly, it was exactly four years when I actually moved in and, and then the lockdown happened. So I was like, oh, well that worked out just in time. But um, so that was my opportunity to say, wow, you know, I've really wanted this. I've dreamed about this. I've, I've made all, all these decisions that lead up to it. And then now is the moment for me to, to claim it and actually live it through. And, um, okay, yes, I'm, I'm doing that. Um, and it was, 
I look back on it and I remember how hesitant I was to do that. I remember that I remember the moment when I bought the plane ticket because buying a plane ticket is the actual concrete action that initiates the chain of events because I was kind of lagging. I knew I had, you know, two months or so until I wanted to leave and I have all the stuff to do. And so, but I knew until I bought a plane ticket that it wasn't real. And so it's, 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 it's so funny how, you know, you can pull it up on the website and get it all, you know, tailored to the exact right time and stuff. And then the actual clicking of the buy button, you know, this mouse click initiates this whole chain of events, you know, that was to follow in some way. And I, I love that this little simple motion of a finger just triggers this an, an enormous thing. So what did I, what did I get out of it? Well, you know, I, I there's a lot of hindsight to it, um, but I could say that I didn't go traveling to to find myself. That wasn't my that wasn't my intention. I wanted to. I did ultimately end up finding myself in a sense because how can you not uh, learn incredible things about yourself? Uh, with this constant state of novelty, trying to establish some amount of consistency in myself and being exposed to all these new environments. But a lot of my intention was, I would have said at the time that I was looking for God, which is kind of cheesy, but I didn't know how to articulate what it was that I was feeling. And I, I, in looking back, what I actually wanted was I wanted to see for myself. I wanted to see for myself. Like, don't just tell me about the world or show me on TV or look on a website. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But I want, to, I want to see for myself. Like, I want to go into my own mind and see what's going on there for myself. And I want to go into, these, go into these communities or go into these countries or go into these regions and see for myself what's going on. I want to see for myself what's at the top of the mountain or what's, what it's like sailing across the ocean or, or what it's like riding on a camel or an elephant or, you know, what it's like sleeping in a yurt. Like, let me, let me, let me experience the world for myself and draw my own, my own conclusions. And I was very blessed to get to do that. And, and one of the things that ended up happening for me after, you know, that all that time of traveling was a lot of people will get to travel for two to three weeks or sometimes three months is the long, is, is a long trip that people will take. If they're adventurous, some people will get the chance to be over, live overseas for a year. And in the shorter amount of trips, there's, um, and this is one of the great blessings that came to me in my life out of this, the shorter amount of trips it's very easy to be overwhelmed by a sense of novelty. Like, oh, look at, look at that advertisement or that tree or look at that dude over there. Everything's new and fresh and it's like, it's really, really exciting. And that's a really wonderful thing to discover novelty. But I traveled for long enough that the novelty of the environments wore off. So I, st- I started to be able to see through the, uh, the novelty of every environment and the, the, the light side, I guess you might say, of the world, which is what we go to travel for. We go to travel for the light side of the world, and when we travel, we're generally insulated from the dark side of the world. No one wants to go, uh, no one wants to, go to you know, a vacation spot and be confronted with the poverty that generally lives on the other side of the, the walls of the resort. You know? like, and we can talk about that separately, but usually that's, you know, people try to be insulated. And particularly when you go to South America, there's a very well-defined tourist trail that many backpackers will follow to the, the highlight places. And that's as much designed to protect the backpackers from seeing the shadow side of the world that they're visiting as it is to protect the people that live in that quote-unquote shadow side from having to inter, uh, interact with the entitled attitude of many of the backpackers. So there's a lot of mutuality there. Well, I traveled for long enough and in enough places that I started to be able to 
get better at navigating off the beaten path. And also, I, I tend to be a very open, friendly guy, like, you know, not sort of like just open eye contact, body language, all these things can work wonders because many people come overseas with a very closed attitude, unfortunately. And, and I was like, I just want to see. I have got any judgment. I just want to see. But I also learned over time to see past the light side and see into the shadow side of the world. And that may sound dark, but it's actually not. It's actually very, very beautiful to witness for myself that just like I have a shadow, you have a shadow, everyone around us has a shadow, nations have a shadow, cultures have a shadow, and we all share this human experience of light and dark. And it's not a, it's not, it's the furthest thing from a judgment thing. It's a real landing in the spiritual reality of nobody's perfect and we're all in this together and we're all trying to figure it out. And I had grown up, of course, living in San Francisco with this idea that, you know, uh, I, as a man, am responsible for all the evils in the world, and America is the most evil nation in the world, and everyone else is this and that. And the thing is, is I got to see from myself that all of these cultures have unique struggles of their own. They all have unique struggles of their own in their own ways, and many people... Uh, many people look to the struggles in America still and say, we want, those, we want those struggles. So it was a very profound experience of recognizing the blessings that I had come from and also honoring the people for their own struggles and recognizing that we are all in this together as one, as one human family. And if I hadn't traveled for as long as I had, I wouldn't be able to see that. And having done so, even through some very difficult circumstances where I was taken advantage of, where I was actively exploited and lied to and deceived and all these things, I still recognize that these human beings are, are my brothers and they're my, and they're my sisters. And I feel a deep sense of affinity to humanity uh, and the human race and um, our shared efforts to figure it out that I don't think I would have felt otherwise. And you talk about the things that I took away from my travels. It was this recognition of being able to look into these countries and to see what are they struggling with? What, are, what, are, what burdens are they suffering under? How can I serve, even in some little way, this person who has their own struggle and not see them as an other? How can I see them like me? And, um, and, and, but then also, how can I also maintain myself Instead of, instead of, you know, lowering myself to somebody out of some sense of shame, you know, like they may be tempted to do for me, say, no, I come with my own set of struggles, you come with you, your set of struggles, and we are equals. And it's, it can be very difficult for travelers to hold that balance. Many of them, many travelers are very, uh, very quick to shame themselves right? Because they feel a sense of guilt or privilege, I suppose, would be the word that would be used. So I don't, I don't particularly like that word. And that doesn't serve anybody. That doesn't serve anybody. That doesn't make the other person feel seen, right? And in the same token, other travelers can be very like, oh, look, they're suffering in this poverty and blah, 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 terrible judgment. And it's like, well, that doesn't help anybody either. But to be able to learn how to navigate both of those inside myself and question my question my prejudices in the word question my perceptions of others and question my own judgments of myself was an incredibly powerful gift that allowed me to as we've been saying integrate and so i walked away absolutely transformed by that experience and so now in a lockdown world i'm able to mirror that to people and i'm it's like a gift that i'm able to pass on in the hopes that other people will get to experience the world that way someday were you, were there, were there things you were actively exploring? Like, were there esoteric traditions you were exploring? Was, was that where you found Vipassana or were there other things you were doing? 
or you were really just hmm. trying to trying to absorb and 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 you know experience every culture as 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 you you found it. A bit of both. Um, I had my own. If I felt like there was something that I was afraid to do, um, I would generally do it. So if uh, oh you know, that sounds that sounds scary in a good way, you know what I mean? Like maintaining like not you know senseless risk taking, but like oh okay, um, okay I've never uh, I've never tried San Pedro. Let's do that. Okay, I've never I went to a mountain climbing school uh, actually when I was at the temple. Uh, one of the guys I met at the temple had done this mountain climbing school in India called the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute. He told me about it literally on the walk out to the temple. And so I filed that away in my mind, said, well, that sounds really scary, you know, <laughs> two weeks up in the, literally up at base camp in the Himalayas learning to mountain climb at 15,000 feet. Okay, I'll go do that. So I ended up doing, <laughs> doing that a couple years later. And so uh, there were esoteric traditions that I would pursue when they presented themselves, if they obviously presented themselves. Uh, but that didn't always that didn't always happen. There were some opportunities that did, like you know, for example, there's all kinds of stuff you can go do in in Goa and in India or in Bali and stuff like that. And so I would go when they presented themselves. Um, uh, but for the most part, if I didn't feel an open invitation, for example, in a place like Japan, Shintoism is a thing. I didn't see any opportunities to participate, for example, in Shinto retreats you know it's, i don't i didn't experience japan as an as maybe there are but i didn't encounter any of them so i didn't go looking for them if they presented themselves to me i took that as an invitation um so i i answered invitations when they came up but in general my travels were attempting to quiet myself as much as possible and really take in the environments that i was in and and, and maintain a sense of uh a sense of curiosity to them like what is this what is this trying to communicate to someone who isn't me, because as a Westerner, just taking Japan as an example, you know that that culture isn't. It can be very opaque um, uh, to Westerners, and because it wasn't designed with Westerners in mind. Obviously, you know it's not like going to a place like France or Spain or something like that, where the architecture and the, and and some of the philosophies are part of my own upbringing and tradition. You go to a place like Japan or China, it's literally like going to another planet in many ways. And those, of course, are not the only examples. So looking at these environments that I'm in and recognizing that everything is trying to communicate something to someone who isn't me, you know, it has meaning. The symbol, the architectural symbolism, the, the particularly Buddhist art or Hindu art, stuff like that, the symbolism is meant to communicate people from within that culture. What could that be trying to say and trying to listen on that side of the dialogue? And I found that was prof profoundly transformative as well. And so if I didn't find the chance to participate in esoteric traditions or feel an invitation, even being in that environment was itself an invitation to participate in the tradition if I could be sensitive enough. And I was very fortunate that the amount of inner work that I had done and continued to do through that process enabled me to be more sensitive than I, I evaluated many of my fellow travelers uh, travelers to be. And that's just a, a byproduct of the age, I think, of a lot of people when they go traveling, and I happen to be a little bit older, so I brought a different set of values. Was there anywhere that really stood out for you, or it just everywhere has its own unique quality, and, and you were really able to appreciate everywhere equally in that in that way? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the place that uh, there were every, every yes, and every place did have its own unique quality. And I can speak at length about 
many of the places I visited. I think some of my favorite experiences were, um, you know, Medellin in Colombia. I loved Medellin, loved Colombia in general. Um, I love Japan. I had an amazing time in New Zealand. Uh, I almost I almost moved there. Got to explore that whole country. It's a very small country, and uh, but I did get to see quite a lot of it. I miss it actually. Um, I spent time uh, in Mongolia, and that's an amazing place with a lot to teach us, particularly uh, as you go out into the countryside and you experience a way of life that's been fundamentally unchanged for thousands of years. Nomadic herders and, and yurts with no electricity, the only running water comes from a river, and you know maybe they have modern clothes and a motorcycle, but other than that, you know, they burn yak dung for fuel and, you know, subsistence farming with herds and that's it. I mean, you can feel the how ancient it is and look up into the sky and there's not even a contrail in the sky because it's so Central Asia that airplanes don't even fly over. So it's really like time traveling in that way. But the place that I like to talk about the most is China because I spent a couple months in China. And uh, this may sound very contradictory, but I think China and the United States have are the are two countries that have tons in common. It may not seem that way on the surface, and I was surprised to discover this myself. But uh, China and the U.S. are very, very similar in some uh, in some paradoxical ways. Yeah, in what ways? Because I, I I also felt to, to some degree it, it was it was in a way like the the most foreign place I had been. Like even the language, wherever I would go. I, I would almost always be able to pick up the language, at least to some degree, you know, for, for simple things, purchasing, hello, things like that. But yeah. in China, it was very difficult. And no, yeah. one of those blocks. But but I also, I, I think I also see what you're saying. Well, what are what are some of the kind of like in a a spiritual sense, like the, the drive of the people, the the, the, the sense of, of a nation, of a pride? What, 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 what did you find to be, to be similar between the U.S. And, and China? Well, the first thing that I found is that the Chinese people were incredibly friendly and curious, just big smiles, you know, because many people in China have never, they've never seen a white person or a European person or a Western person. And so me walking around with a red beard and tattoos and being over six feet tall, like I stand out in a crowd. And so many people would want to take selfies with me. Um, you know, it felt like being a celebrity. And I had experienced that in other countries, but the Chinese people were so lovely about it. They were so polite and they had these big smiles, like literally did feel like a celebrity. So it never felt, it never felt really burdensome because they were just so charming. And they so just, they so wanted to have a conversation with me. They really wanted to talk to me. And I really wanted to talk to them, but I didn't speak Mandarin. And Google Translate was good for having very basic, sim heavily simplified conversations. But that was the one time I really, really wished that I spoke Mandarin. So, and my experience of Americans and many people's experience of Americans, especially when they visit America, is that Americans are incredibly friendly people, very, very friendly people uh, to foreigners overseas. They hear an accent and that light up, and it was the same in China. I think the other thing is just how complicated China is as a country, that there are all these different geographic regions with different, uh, I guess you'd say, microcultures that all interact and have all been unified under this one kind of homogenizing government banner 
um, but that really every distinct region of China has its own cultural distinctiveness in terms of cuisine and traditions and dress that was, you know, once the, the communist government arrived, tried to eliminate as much of those differences as possible and was thankfully not hugely successful with that. But to travel around different regions is to really experience different different nations uh, in a way. And then there's the, there's the relationship that the Chinese people have with their government, um, which is complicated, as same in the United States. Um, and then the fact that China is very walled off culturally from the rest of the world. They have the Great Firewall, which actually blocks their access to uh, much of the Internet as we understand it. Um, but they also have this massive... Uh, cultural engine. They have their own Hollywood. They have their own recording industry. They have their own cultural traditions in terms of in terms of the arts. So much, in fact, that their interest is really only in the most blockbuster stuff coming out of the United States. And you know, the U.S. is very similar in that we don't really get too much of the rest of the world's culture. We have our own cultural production, our own culture engine. We don't import a lot of culture, but we export. And uh, China doesn't uh, import a whole lot or export a whole lot, but they do, have, they do have their own. And those are just some of the ways that I found the two countries actually have a lot in common. And my, it's my sincere belief that if the American people, and this is probably true for most nations around the world, if the American people and the Chinese people were to actually meet, They'd get along famously if if you could like magically erase the language barrier. They would find so much in common in terms of family and tradition and eat and, and eating, sharing a meal and and uh, and respect and you know honoring and all these things. But it's unfortunately our our governments that uh, I would have said that they were at odds at one point. Now it's <laughs> that's another conversation. <laughs> but we'll just say that that, that they're at odds. Um, and that has been that I've found to be true more times than um, than I expected was how much the peoples of the world generally have in common with each other on a fundamental level, and how much conflict is created by um, by governments. And it's you know a, a sad fact of the ages that we live in that just how how much if people were given the chance to see each other that would really change things and. Um, so that was very powerful to recognize that of the, the two most powerful nations on earth who might seem to be very different in many ways actually had a lot that was fundamentally in common. One of the, <clears throat> the interesting things I remember when I was traveling, it was uh, sometimes people would say the, and I, I never really liked this saying because I, I felt there was a little bit of arrogance in it, but, but there was <laughs> truth in it too, which was this idea the difference between a traveler and a tourist is a traveler doesn't have a return ticket. And there, there, you know, there's a different quality when one is just, as you said, just kind of wandering and, and allowing life to take one in whatever direction that may be. Right. And I, I was listening to something the other day <clears throat> and, uh, they said this statement of, you know, many Americans, for better, or for worse, have this idea that the U.S. is the greatest country. And this person was saying that's usually from people who have never left the country. And I often, you know, to me, there was arrogance also in that statement. And mm -hmm. fr from my perspective, you know, I think 
that is one of the differences between, again, this idea of a tourist and a traveler. I think a lot of times, and I see it a lot in South America, I've seen it all over the world, is when people do come down, you know, as you said, to potentially South America, just using it as an example, when, when you go on what one may call like the tourist trail, and, and one has an allotted time and these destinations, there's often this idealization of what they're seeing. And, and mm -hmm. I think as you, you very wisely said, you don't see the other side. You don't see maybe the shadow side of that. And I think a lot of people see that and then they, they bring that back. Again, just using the US as an example, they bring yeah. that back and then they idealize these countries. And, and their, mm -hmm. their whole view of the country is, well, it's so beautiful and the people are so nice and there's all these great things. Right. And I think that's what that guy was talking about is you know many potentially americans they haven't left and and they do have this idea that that the us is the greatest country or these people who have traveled and seen the good side of countries and also have this idea that you know maybe the us isn't the greatest country there, there's all these other countries that are potentially better they have all of these other things what i found for myself and and i'd be curious you know to, to uh, of your take is I think when one really begins to go out into the world and, and, and see both the light and the dark, as you said, mm -hmm. there's, a real, there's a real appreciation of, of where we come from. And I remember I was in Turkey one time and I met this amazing couple and, and they, they, they had never had kids. I, I didn't ask why, but there was something around that. And so they, 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 they would host a lot of people and, and they found it really fascinating just learning from, you know, from, from other cultures. And I think they took a real joy, almost like this, like this, you know, paternal or, you know, kind of the quality of like caring for these people. And, but I, I was sitting with this, the, the, the husband one day and, it was really beautiful and it was something that always stuck with me. And he said, the, the, the greatest journey is the return home. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my sense is that if people really do go out and see the world, and as we were talking about a, a little bit in the beginning, um, you know, this idea of coming back and realizing like all of the beauty that, that we actually have access to and all of the good of the country. And, mm -hmm. you know, much as you were saying, like the media, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I think as you very wisely said, like, don't watch the media because it is this message. It's this yeah. constant, almost indoctrination of how bad the country is, all of the yeah. faults, you know, all of the things that are wrong. And obviously those are important, like those need to be addressed, but mm -hmm. it's not putting it in a greater perspective, which I think when people really do go out, they actually see much like we were talking about, like that guy, Francis Ngannou, okay, maybe I am relatively poor, <laughs> but I do have a house, you know, I do have access to, 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 to some degree of education, I have access to the internet, I have running water, I may not be buying the best food, but I, I'm not starving. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I may not have a ton of excess money, but I, I have the, the basics, I have the necessities. And, and I live in a place where, of course, we're not all equal, you know, no society in the history of the world has ever been and will ever be equal, because that's right. just a principle of nature that doesn't exist. But we have an opportunity, you know, much like you and I are sitting here right now, we've 
we've been raised in a in a in a culture in a society that you know as you said you know i also don't necessarily like that word privilege because i think it's very subjective and it's used in in kind of deleterious ways but there's truth yes, to that great. in that we have you know through through seemingly on the surface no action of my own been born into a culture that's given me these amazing opportunities and it's not that we don't struggle you know as you said you 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 made sacrifices to to live in a certain way to do those things but the vast majority of people in the world will never have that opportunity because they don't live in a culture society that one promotes those or two gives them the opportunity to really rise out of that and it, it's so I guess that's one part. And, and then this is just kind of coming to my mind, too. You know, I think that's one of the the real teachings of working with plants mm-hmm. is it, it allows one to begin to see all of the things that they actually have rather than the things that they don't have to see, as you said, this idea of suffering, that these can also be truly our blessings and to take that. And then to go live our lives, you know, to live our lives in a way that has meaning, that that, mm-hmm. that is able to serve, that's able to promote the good, you know, as you said, the light, and, and not to ignore the shadow, but to identify it, to be really clear on what that is, and then create a way of life where we are not on an individual level propagating those same things, that we're in essence mm-hmm. being the change that we want to see. So I know that's kind of kind of a, a long question, but uh, oh, I guess, uh, you know, on, on the most basic level, like your experience of traveling and that relationship of, of then coming back to, to a country like the U.S. and, and what, what that's been like for you. Mm-hmm. Well, you're touching on issues that I'm very passionate about and I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I can, I can come at it from all different angles because this was my own work to process and integrate what I, um, what I had experienced. I think the first thing that I want to say very briefly is that I don't actually disrespect tourists. I know there's a lot of discussion on the, on the traveler trail, so to speak, about I'm not a tourist, I'm a traveler, I'm a backpacker or whatever. It's like, look, if we're overseas, we're all tourists. We are all tourists. Like, we don't live there. Traveler, the traveler is an archetype that we aspire to. It's a guide star. I don't know that we ever actually achieve it in that way. You know, like, there are people who are pure tourists who go and they go on a very shepherded experience where they go out into the world and they will see a thing and then they're, and then they're shepherded back. And I was, I know that a lot of people who travel look down on them like, oh, look at them in their buses, you know, with their backpacks. And the tourists always seem very scared and alienated. And, and the thing is, is I always felt such intense gratitude for them because it would have been incredibly easy for them to stay home, for them not to go anywhere for them not to try and experience something outside. For them, it's an enormous risk. It's an enormous risk, maybe health-wise, maybe physically, maybe financially, to actually take the, the smallest baby step that they could outside of their home environment and get on a plane and go do a thing. Now, a lot of tourists bring a lot of you know shitty attitudes with them, but guess what? A lot of backpackers do too. You know, I saw some unconscionable behavior from backpackers. It's like, why are you digging in? Why are you getting so angry at this person at the front desk at this hostel in Medellin? You're in Medellin, Colombia. Like, what could you possibly have to be upset about? Like, 
comment, you know, I didn't say that, but I was like, what are you, like, look at the, we're in paradise, literally paradise, you know, what do you, how could you be upset? Like, so you've been traveling all night, like, you're not sitting in a meeting, like, calm down. So, you know, the, the notion of a bad attitude isn't exclusive to, isn't exclusive to tourists. And I found that there was such a, a strong sense that I found very distasteful between people who had this self-identified vision of a traveler in a capital or T, capital T sense that allowed them to feel a sense of elitism over their fellow, their fellow human being, like, oh no, I'm a traveler and they're just a tourist. And I never got to write about it for my blog, but I, I always thought that I thought that sort of entitled attitude was I always thought that was kind of ugly and, and I always made an effort to be as polite and friendly to everyone that I could uh, when I traveled, even to you know to the extent that they were <laughs> there were people that did not want to be polite and friendly to me, but so I did my best. But just about that issue because it's something I thought a lot about. Um just to not get over attached this this image of oneself as a traveler because as soon as the the journey becomes about you know you and your identity you've now separated from your environment you know oh look at how great i am oh you know <laughs> well you're missing something <laughs> you know what i mean and certainly there's there's room to be proud of oneself like i actually i want to share um if i could a story from my time at the uh, at the temple uh, during one of my ceremonies uh, I think this was around the first the first three or four nights were quite chaotic as you know ayahuasca is a purgative, so all the stuff starts coming out you know of of every possible orifice and <laughs> and way that it can come out you know physical toxins being purged from the body i 'm very fortunate that i 've sat in fifteen ceremonies and and i 've only vomited once, and that was because my I, I had i set this intention to i wanted to i was really dumb in hindsight i found i 'm embarrassed not at the temple but i want, I felt so blessed by some of the healing that I had received I wanted to open myself up to uh, to heal something that was out there in the universe, you know, like I felt I'd been given a gift, so I wanted to give back, and that was a bad idea. <laughs> Nonetheless, I spoke the intention, and I got way more than I bargained for, and that's the that's the one ceremony in 15 that I actually vomited from because I was so disoriented. Um, but uh, I made a deal with my with my body during my ayahuasca ceremonies. I said, okay, look, if I absolutely must vomit, I will. If we can do this any other way, let's do it that way. And my body was like, okay. So I would sweat, I would shake and sweat and stretch and cry and you know lots of shaking just as the energies as the energies coming out. And that was the first three days. But then sometime around the fourth ceremony. I remember sitting, the wave had passed, I was sitting up on my mat, maybe I was uh, smoking some tobacco or, or uh, putting some flower water, I forget the term, over myself, you know, the, one of the many, many rituals, and I'm just sitting there kind of quietly in the, in the disorientation, and I, and I hear this voice in my head, in my own voice, say, I'm such a failure. And I'm like, what was that? And it's like, it's like this butterfly that's flying away. I'm like, reach out and I grab it. Like, what was that? And I grab it and I, like in my hands, like it was my voice saying this to myself, very quietly whispered in the back of my mind. Do I, do I believe this about myself? Do I actually believe that I'm a failure? And it was powerful enough to recognize that this was something that I had quietly been subconsciously whispering uh, to myself. And... I sat with that belief now, and I, I, I looked at it and I said, wow, do I actually be a, am I actually a failure? And I realized that, wait a minute, I'm sitting down here in South America in an ayahuasca center, having fulfilled my dream of initiating my backpacking around the world that I've always, that I've always wanted. And I sold all my stuff and I did it and I'm here and I'm alive. 
by any definition that means anything to me, I'm the opposite of a failure. I survived. And I was able to, then this huge wave of explosion of crying, of a memory that came up of where that initially came from, of when I was a young boy watching my parents fight and wanting to, you know, was maybe five or seven years old, wanting to, them to stop fighting because you want mom and dad to stop fighting and then failing at that and then internalizing as children do in this solipsistic way that it's somehow something to do with me. I internalized that I was a failure and I carry that forward through the next 30 years of my life. And I saw all the ways that that self-limiting belief that was very adaptive in the moment because it kept me from intervening between my parents' relationship. It kept me safe, but it became maladaptive as I became an adult because carrying around this belief that I'm a failure will naturally lead to failure. If you believe that about yourself, or I believed it about myself, and I would see the things that I put my passion and energy to not come to the fruition that I wanted. I was struggling against myself in that way. So in that moment, I was able to release that belief and cry and shake and sweat it out and <laughs> felt very liberated, felt very liberated from that belief to recognize like, I am not a failure. I, like, like the movie Inception, I took that belief, that little top that was spinning inside the, the safe of my life and I took it and I put something else in there because you can't just say, I am a, I'm not, not a failure or say, I'm not a failure. You have to put it in with a positive belief like I am a success. And I put that in there, I slammed the safe shut and I felt my entire body begin reconfiguring itself out from the very, very depths to becoming what I wanted to be. Um, and we can get back to the, you know, how that manifested in terms of my intention later. But, the, but the, that moment where I recognized that I had the opportunity coming from the United States and coming from a very, um, I don't like the word privilege because the word has been weaponized. Privilege is a concept that can be used to demonstrate that you have advantages. But the way that the word is used now is it's used to cut someone off at the knees. That's the first time I heard that word was like in 2014, 2013. Check your privilege, like like a whip crack at me. I'm like, who are you talking to me that way? Like, because you could feel it in the energy. And so I started taking that apart. And I realized that the reason why that has resonance for people is that there's actually, there is actually a quality in that that has truth to it, which is to say, recognize your advantages. But rather than using your advantages as a source of shame, advantages, benefits, blessings are tools that can be used to bless others. And rather than saying, oh, wow, I should feel ashamed of my gifts, it's like, no, my gifts are used to benefit others. Very much so. And so coming from the United States and having, and having come from the circumstances I did and then going out into the world and, as you say, seeing past the, the um, travel industry image that many, company, that many countries present in order to facilitate travel to their space, being able to see past and through that to the reality of these countries, I recognize, I recognize something and I will probably trigger, if I have your permission to trigger some of your listeners, um, hopefully I won't, but the United States is the freest, most open, and most just civilization in human history up until this point, period, period. And, if, and for anyone who wishes to argue with me, uh, you can name another one. Because there isn't one. And I, you know, I've, I've been to these countries. That is not to say that the United States is perfect. Obviously it isn't. But my travels show me there is no perfect country. Every country is dealing with its own set of shadows. And our shadows are not any better or worse. They're just ours. But with the added benefit of having the material prosperity that we have, we go to places that have more spiritual prosperity. We learn from them. And then our responsibility 
is to take our material prosperity and to use it to benefit these other countries, to not shame ourselves for, for the benefits, the blessings that we have, instead to step fully into them and put them into service. And putting them into service looks different for every individual. Many, many times in the United States, there's this belief like, oh, well, we have all this money, so we have to send all this money overseas. Well, there are plenty of places that I saw where overseas foreign aid money actually ended up making things worse, that that wasn't what the people needed. They didn't, they didn't need money. And, and it, it wouldn't be my place to say what the people did need because I wasn't on the inside of those communities, but I could see that Western aid money didn't significantly improve the conditions for the people in these, in these regions. And that's a, that's a pretty true thing that many of these NGOs, while there are many of them that do wonderful work, there are, there are many that don't actually make things measurably benefit, beneficial to others. But from our, benef- from our blessings, we can take ourselves and we can pay with ourselves, as we talked about in the beginning, forward into when we travel. It can be as simple as, and it really can be this simple as going to a foreign country, assuming we can, going to a foreign country and allowing hundreds of Chinese tourists to take selfies with you. They loved it. They loved it. There was a time that I almost missed a bus because I had, there is a, I don't remember the name, but there's a monastery that was carved into the side of a mountain outside of this, um, uh, outside of this small town in, uh, in China. And it's not very popular with Western tourists, but it's very popular with Chinese tourists. There's massive tourism inside their own country. And you climb to the top of this mountain, and it's staircase, 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 all the way up to the top, and then you have to climb all the way back down to catch the bus. So I, me and a friend, we climbed all the way to the top stairs and started walking down. And then as we were walking down, uh, we were there in the morning, and it was now the late morning, buses of Chinese tourists started arriving and started walking up. So as we're walking down, me and this other, uh, I think he was British, this British guy would come down, and here's a wave of Chinese tourists, and they all want to take photos with us, including the tourism operators, like big group photos, and, you know, because I'm really tall, and they're doing, like, fists standing next to me, and they're loving it. They're having a great time, we're all laughing, having a great time, and then they all go up, and then we go down, and then another wave of tourists comes up. You know what I mean? And they all want photos. And then another, this happened like four times and it's like, we actually have to catch our bus. You know what I mean? And something like that, that may be the only time that these people ever actually meet a Western person. And in that moment, I, may, I have the opportunity to be oh, another selfie fine and to be shitty about it or to be impatient or to recognize that I am so lucky to be here in China and to be an ambassador on behalf of my country, on behalf of my culture, on behalf of my half of the world, and I can radiate joy and friendliness and togetherness with these people who may never see anyone like me again, right? And so something like that, the blessing of inner work, and I know that may seem really trivial when when the challenges of the world seem so significant, and they are, but if your practice, if your spiritual practice doesn't make you a better person in every single individual, everyday interaction you have, I would say your practice isn't deep enough. It's not just enough to say like, oh, I, I, I write this blog or I write this book or I do this thing and then I'm snippy to the waiter or the, or the waitress or I'm rude to people overseas. It's like, no, if the work begins at the ground level interaction of the other human being that you're with, the, the person that you're having the conversation to in this moment, the person you're sitting next to, the people you spend the most time to, <clears throat> the stranger you'll never see again, <clears throat> excuse me, that's where it begins. 
And so talk about benefits and the opportunity to pass those benefits along. The, work, the beautiful work of ayahuasca is to purify the inner self to be able to radiate that gift to other people. And it may seem insignificant, but it doesn't feel insignificant. It feels like in that moment, I really got something from being able to see these people who were from a culture 180 degrees opposite from my own. And to be able to show them my culture in, in that country and in Mongolia and all these other and all these other places. And that is the beginning. That's the foundation of it. And from there, it's like, how can I be of service to my friends? How can I be of service to my community? How can I be of service to my world? How can I take all these blessings and benefits that I've been given and put them forward into service instead of feel shame about them? And that's where I think a lot of the propaganda in the United States goes very, very wrong. And I think maybe it, maybe it might have been well-intentioned from the beginning. I'm not sure about that, but I, I can say that it has been taken too far because unless it's teaching people to appreciate themselves and how to be stronger and better and give more, then it's, then it's, it's uh, deadly. Uh, it's soul deadly because shame and guilt are toxic to the soul. And the propaganda that's spreading through the United States right now is entirely shame and guilt-based, 100%. Every bit of social justice programming, critical theory programming, I don't know, I mean, maybe your podcast doesn't quite get here, but I will say it's all guilt and shame-based, and it's destructive to humanity, and it's crippling a nation that could do so much good for so many people, and making our shadow darker, not less. And I, 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 I really can't emphasize that enough. Uh, America has the ability, and Americans, for our unique character, have the ability to do so much good. And the notion of the greatest nation in the world, like, you know, you can say what is a nation, it's good for the thing that it's meant for, but I can't say that America is a greater nation than Vanuatu, except unless I apply some very specific characteristics. If you want to talk about a nation that's really great at generating, for example, material prosperity, America is great at that. So in that sense, yes, if you want to choose that value. But if you want to say, you know, a nation that's really great at subsistence farming for small, tightly knit groups of people living in an archipelago nation, sustaining, you know, aspects of their culture, Vanuatu is way better for that. So there is this both and. There is great in some sense of the ability to bless the world with material prosperity, but there's also weaknesses. But Vanuatu, or pick any other nation, New Zealand, for example. New Zealand's great if you want to shoot an epic fantasy, a series of epic fantasy movies, you know what I mean? Or inspire people about the beauty of nature. So great is based on a set of values, but I can say that America manages to do a pretty incredible job for m more people, uh, more people and more different kinds of people than literally any other nation in human history. Perfection, no, but perfection, this isn't Starfleet. This isn't Hogwarts. You know what I mean? This is this is this is reality, and um, and it hurts me to see a country that can do so much good being told constantly how evil it is. And I also had to deprogram that from myself, so I can go on about this. But that's uh, that's my feelings about that. Yeah. Well, I I agree with you on all of that, and, and I think it's it, it, they're they're important topics to talk about, and and obviously. They, they can be very divisive because we, you know, again, one of the, the real things that I see in this work is, you know, so much of our suffering comes from our beliefs and, and holding mm -hmm. on to these things. And I think in Buddhism, they, they, they speak of this idea of, of wisdom. The definition that they use is seeing things from the other side. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we're saying so much of the, 
so much of it, and I think that's a very good word, is is propaganda. And I, I think a lot of us, we we don't necessarily see that. And again, I think that's one of the benefits of going outside the country. Yeah. When you come back in, you see that most of the media, most of what we're being taught is propaganda. I mean, yeah. when I was in China, that was something I saw very clearly. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of propaganda. And, oh, yeah. and I was thinking, well, in the U.S., there's, you know, we, we have free media and but but now when I <clears throat> look at the U.S., it's the same propaganda. It's it's mm-hmm. the same thing. You know, it, it's 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 maybe maybe I guess we could say it's a little better. <laughs> but I mean, it's it, tuned it, to us. Massive, massive programming and massive propaganda, yeah. and 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 very much in in these control mechanisms. And and again, it, I think it's something that's that's just it's part of nature. It's, you know, what, what the founding fathers were pointing to is, is these ideas of liberty and freedom. Yeah. They, they, they never came for free. There was always a cost to them. And, and, and as they said, it requires a constant vigilance. And if we don't see those, if we don't realize why those things are important, we will lose them because that's just Mm -hmm. the nature of humans. And and I think it's really bred from fear and and from each individual fear, from our collective fear, from our fears of societies. And, you know, all of these things, as you said, and and this is where I guess how deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Were these things started with good intentions, potentially? Potentially not. <laughs> right, right, right. But that, the, you know, the idea of division is what creates suffering. And if we can't have open dialogue, you know, as I think you said very, very wisely, like that, that word privilege, there's truth to that. But you have to understand what the truth is. And if you use it to weaponize, then yeah. you get away from the essence. You, you, you get away from from actually an understanding. And that's where I think things like dialogue and, and openness. And as you said, through, through traveling, you know, talking to people like this is, this is what begins to shape us and to be able to see things from, from, from a different side, again, in that Buddhist idea to have wisdom, that's what wisdom is. Yep. You know, it's, it's the opposite of entropy. It's the opposite of holding on. It's the opposite of tightness. It's, it's, it's a martial arts principle. It's this idea of flowing, of, of moving like water, of the feminine, you know, being receptive, being open. If we have this, this staff that we put in the ground and we say, this is the way, and if you don't agree with this way, then you're wrong. And it's the opposite of what the U.S. was built upon. The U.S. was built upon this idea of diversity, of we all think differently. We all have different values, but we can come together as a society and honor those values. And it seems like on the one hand, we preach those. But then on the other hand, there's this narrative where if you don't agree with it, well, then you get ostracized. And that's fundamentally you know, the antithesis of not only what the, the, the U.S. was built upon, but what all of these esoteric traditions, I think, are pointing towards, you know, mm-hmm. if if being compassionate, if being loving, if, if being happy are qualities that we want to to hold ourselves and to see in the world, then we have to be willing to live those. And, and it's something, you know, I also see very often is people who preach those, they, they say those things. Yeah. <laughs> the minute someone comes along who has a different view, they become 
the 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 oppressor the you can't say that you can't do that you this is wrong da 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 yeah and it's very anti diversity it's the opposite there there's 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 no there's no diversity of thought of knowledge i mean that's 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 our all of our innate kind of humanness is this quest for knowledge of or gnosis mm-hmm. you know the, the, the quest for truth if we already think we know what's true and what's right, and we're the sole source of that, then we cut ourselves off from the world, you know, and, and this is where all war starts is from yeah. this idea that I'm right. And if you don't believe what I think, then you're bad. And ultimately I'm justified in killing you. When I take that mm-hmm. logic to the extreme, then I can murder you because I'm right. justified because I'm right. I'm the right. Cause you're, Cause you're evil. Yeah, exactly. And it's, <clears throat> You know, it's, I think, you know, again, a lot of this is a natural progression. And and I think that's where a lot of this plant work is very powerful because it really confronts us. And, you know, as you said, it makes us question these beliefs that we have. And, mm-hmm. and any of these beliefs that causes suffering are inevitably something that needs to be questioned because it's not making us happy. Right. You know, and whoever the president is or whatever your political belief, if I believe that person is evil and I believe that I can act in an evil way because that person is evil, well, then I'm no different than that person. I mean, these are like classic esoteric teachings. I think we we were talking about this in in the podcast we did. I mean, that was, that was one of the main teachings that that's often spoke about of Jesus. You know, it's, it's so easy to see the log in my brother's eye, or sorry, to see the speck in my brother's eye, right. the log that's in my own eye. You know, right. It's so easy to point the finger. It's so easy to judge and to blame. But what happens when we begin to look at ourselves? And, and that's where I think this inner work that you're talking about is really so vital. Mm-hmm. Because as long as I have these things going in my mind, I project those out into the world. I become the very thing that I dislike. But if mm-hmm. I resolve those within myself, then I can be a leading example. And, you know, you know, as you were talking, it's, that's going to be triggering to people when they hear that, something like social justice. Like, who doesn't want social justice? We all want social justice, right? We all want justice. <laughs> it's, it's like right. justice, social justice and justice are not the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're very different. But the idea, if if I'm not willing to do the thing that I'm asking of someone else, then there is no justice. You know, justice, mm-hmm. it ultimately comes from within. And, and when I am willing to be that change, when I'm willing to live true to these principles, then we all become that change and we all in that way create the world we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think so much of the division we're experiencing comes from this idea that the other person is wrong and I'm not willing to put myself in their shoes. I'm not willing to listen. I'm not willing to have dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I think that's where some of these things like, you know, the podcast you're creating and, and, and stepping out of that programming, stepping out of, out of that constant indoctrination is so important, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and even like that's where traveling is so important because we all have ideas, we all have beliefs. And then one day we're, we're talking to someone or we're traveling or we take plant medicine and all of a sudden we're confronted with that of like, oh my God, I may have been wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It was built on this, this thing that I thought was so true and so real. 
And if I can see it from the other side, then I, then I can begin to shift and then I can begin to change. So with, with your, with your podcast, is that something you kind of inspired you to do that was, was seeing because your your podcast is called the Renaissance of Men, and and yes. you know, so we already talked about that word Renaissance, which I think is is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of men, I think, for a lot of people, that may be confusing. Like, why focus on men? Why why not focus on humans, or why not focus on all of life? Or what what was the appeal? What did you what did you see through your experience? One that made you create that. And then, and then two, what made you focus on, on that, that, that spectrum in, in particular? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, before I jump into that, I just wanted to say one thing um, to everything which I, that you just said, which I agree with. But I, I wanted to add one thing, which is to say, anyone who tries to get you or me or anyone else to feel guilt and shame is not your friend, period, period. If someone wants to propagate an idea to me that is leading me to feel ashamed and guilty without giving, without giving the opportunity to say, Hey, but it's, Hey, but it's okay. Hey, but it's okay. But we can, we can, we can transform from this. But certainly when we come, when it comes to propaganda, there's a lot out there in the, in the world right now that's saying that you should be, you should, and, and this is part of life. You should be and feel guilty and ashamed for exactly what you are. Period, and you know now kneel. That's that's what we see. Cover your, that's the two the two dominant symbols of 2020 were cover your mouth and kneel. Now, what is that? What is that? What's going on there? Like can we talk about that? No, we can't talk about that. So cover your mouth and kneel. And sorry, that's just I'm not down with that because I think what's really at issue for me as I think about ayahuasca and vipassana is notions of is notions of dignity. This is a word that we don't really have. Um, we don't really have in our um, in our in our culture anymore um, because there's a lot of people behaving in an undignified fashion that are celebrated in the media. Just put on put on MTV or you know or or uh, any social media platform and you'll see people behaving in an undignified or in, in shameless way and they get likes and attention. It's like, Oh, well, I have to behave this way. And we lose, we lose a sense of, of dignity and, and self-respect. And there's a lot within our culture, within our food, within our electromagnetic spectrum, within, um, perhaps I said water as well, that is attempting to weaken us internally and weaken our sense of dignity and, 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 uh, and healthy pride of, of being a human being, of being what we are, of recognizing our unique blessings and advantages and struggles and, and preventing us from stepping into that and would rather have us weak and compliant. And um, so as you talk about you know all these all these different notions. I look at them as all part of the same thing. I look at the depression and the anxiety that we've been experiencing in the West for years as a symptom of this materialistic, reductionistic way of looking at the world, this spiritually impoverished way, and it's designed to weaken us and designed to make us complacent and compliant and afraid and divide us from our sources of inner spiritual, our inner spiritual wealth, and to continue hammering in the propaganda that we're weak or bad or evil or broken 
religion or all these things until the point when we actually like believe it and begin behaving that way. And the virtue of, of esoteric practices like ayahuasca is it begins to restore that inner sense of connection to our sense of spiritual wealth. And even though the entire outside world can be saying, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, you should feel guilty, you should feel terrible. It's like, well, no, I've, I've worked hard to establish my sense of inner integrity and my sense of spiritual wealth that I give freely. I have nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be ashamed of. And that is, that is the benefit of these practices. So all these things, you know, they're all integrated, as we're saying. They're all, they're all tied together. Um, so as you, you mentioned, the renaissance of men. Maybe, maybe big, just to interject there really quickly. Yeah. Because I think it's a question people often have is, is because it seems like that starts to go down like this conspiracy rabbit hole. We but, can go there too. <laughs> yeah. But... I mean, I think from any objective point, all of those things you said, we can find very concrete examples of, of those things happening. So yeah. why, why do you think, because I would agree, the, these esoteric practices, I think that's the, the very essence of what they're teaching, is how to be a whole human being, how to be connected to life, how to find yeah. one's strength, how to, how to see clearly, how to embody certain qualities, again, that propagate the life that, that we actually want to live. But why do you think that's why do you think there are these systems in place that 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 seem to be contributing to the opposite of that? Is it just that's fundamental human nature, the nature of life? Is this need for control of of, of weakening people? Is is someone who is liberated and, and not in some new agey sense of you know enlightenment, but but someone who's strong in their beliefs and who who sees the world clearly and. And, and sees that they can be self-sufficient and, and not, in a, not in a narcissistic way, but that sure. they have their own power. And through having their own power, they can also help to affect that change in others. Mm -hmm. Is that a, is that a, do you, you see that as a, as a, as a threat that, that, that people are scared by that, that, uh, you know, whatever systems of control we have in, in place are, are, are scared of that, or that's just, that's just the archetypical journey of a human being is we all have to experience that. And there are just some people for whatever reason, whether it's through suffering or through some, some enlightenment moment where they realize like, I need to step out of that paradigm and begin finding my, my own strength and, and, mm -hmm. and any one or anything that's not in alignment with that, as you said, is not serving me. Because I think that's a very important point, what you said. Yeah. You know, if someone is is degrading us in any way, and, and it often happens in very subtle ways, yep. that person is not serving me or us in a way that's helping to grow us. Because, mm -hmm. because to grow us as an individual is also helping to grow us as a society, as a family, as a culture, as humans, as as life, as the earth, as the universe. You know, we're not separate from from any of those things. So mm -hmm. what do you think? Is there some driving force or or what is your what's your thought on that? Well, I mean, this is something I'm, I'm glad you asked, Jason. I'll, I'll give you the honest answer. And, you know, after exploring all of these esoteric traditions for about 20 years, you know, psychology, spirituality, mysticism, um, uh, plant medicines, earth medicines, meditations, breath work, all these different practices. I've got an enormous list, float tanks, everything. Uh, I finally landed on Christianity and I was baptized Christian in September of last year. And one of the reasons why 
is because of all of the different esoteric traditions that I've found, Christianity had what I found to be, after my own breadth of experience, the best answer for uh, the question of evil, which I think is what you're talking about. This anti-human force, this force that seeks to weaken us, that seems to make us complacent and compliant, we can see it in our culture around us, and we can see it manifesting in various ways in our lives and in, and in the earth uh, and, and various systems of control. Where does it come from? Where does it issue from? Is it some people will say, oh, it's just an emergent property. Some people will say, I've met many, I, one of my friends says, oh, people who are evil are just doing the best what they think is the right thing to do, and it just happens to not be correct. And I never found that satisfying because the, the the uncomfortable fact of the matter is that there there are human beings on earth that derive pleasure from causing harm to others it's called uh, sadism there are truly sadistic human beings on earth there are psychopaths and there are sadists that create suffering in other people and, and this is a very uncomfortable topic I know and uh, it is my hope that no one listening has ever encountered someone like that but perhaps you have and certainly uh, we can read about examples of that examples of that in the world and I can provide resources for that so this idea that someone is creating suffering in another human being consciously consciously I mean none of us ever meet someone like that however they do exist this idea that someone would exist that creates suffering in another human being for pleasure, um, non-consensually, uh, obviously, where does that come from? What, philosoph what spiritual philosophy can really answer for that? And I found that Christianity did. And the way that Christianity explains it is that there is a primordial force in the universe that hates creation, consciously with will and intention hates creation, hates the light, hates God, and hates humanity most of all. And seeks to, and what, what this being who's called uh, Satan or Lucifer or the devil, and now we are not speaking metaphorically, I'm speaking in a sense theologically, literally, this being, hate, what this being hates about humanity is our free will. Because God, this is, this is the mythological story of Christianity, and this is in the Bible, and this is also in uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, I believe, probably also in Dante. Um, God created the angels, and the angels didn't necessarily have free will in that way, in the same way that humans do, is my understanding. And so God created man with free will and told the angels to serve man. And, and Lucifer, the most powerful of the angels, said, I'm not doing that. And God said, yes, you are. And Lucifer said, no, I'm not. And then the war erupted in heaven. The archangel Michael defeated Lucifer and cast him into hell where he became Satan. In order to get revenge on God, because Satan cannot directly challenge God, uh, God, uh, sorry, Satan approached Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and used their free will against them to tempt them into eating the apple, to tempt them into sin. So our greatest strength is our free will, which, which I'll define very precisely, which is our ability. We don't, which is our ability to choose between options. We don't have free will in the sense of uh, that I can just sprout, you know, wings or scales or fly if I want to. My will is not totally free. But even at the at the even at the basic, most boiled down point of my consciousness, I discover to myself the the free ability to choose between options, and that's 
the that's the great story that the the hero when presented with the choice you know like 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 a uh, uh, Mel Gibson at the end of Braveheart he's being spoiler alert he's being tortured on the rack in all these terrible ways and he has the choice to to either surrender or to stick or or to stick to his belief and he cries out freedom in this wonderfully triumphant moment that even at the final the human spirit the human will the strongest cannot be broken that's for the free will that I'm talking about. Satan, Lucifer, used our free will against us to corrupt our will and leading to the curse of original sin, which led to the world that we live in, we live in today. So, because, the, uh, because Satan, Lucifer, cannot actually create anything, um, can only destroy, we have the creative spark. So, our free will must be corrupted, perverted, shamed into inverting things, essentially, into creating destruction. So that's, that's the, the essence of the answer for the problem of evil, is that our human free will is corrupted and perverted by a spirit that hates us and hates creation and hates the beauty of creation as it was made in an attempt to actively destroy it. And that, to me, clicked everything into place as an understanding of where does all this come from? Why is it that we have so much beauty in us that we all feel this ability to create and envision a better world? Why is it that the world is not that? Because we look at our propaganda, we look at our upbringing, we look at genetic trauma and all of these genetic trauma and all of these things and recognize the the perversion and the twisting of our free will towards anti-human ends. And we see that writ large now. We see our systems, these institutions that we've spent hundreds of years building and imbuing with our trust suddenly en masse as one turning on humanity. And it happened so seamlessly all at once that most people who weren't aware couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. But we built up these institutions. They were flooded with people who have, we'll say, corrupted wills. And then they turned those institutions on humanity. And they're now marching in on the aware people of the world trying to, again, what is it that they want? They want us to sacrifice our free will. Wear this. Take this. Do this. Do, you know, kneel and be silent. And so... I, I, was, uh, I chose to become a Christian, and I, I want everyone to know I know that much of this language is very charged for many people uh, relating to their upbringing, and I want everyone to know that this is not evangelistic in any sense. I'm stating my own beliefs from the core of my being, and you are free to do with them as they please, because I recognize myself included. A lot of people have a lot of um, very strong feelings about the way that Christianity was imposed on them and has been imposed on them for their lives, and I honor and I, and I respect that. I don't wish anyone to feel like this is preaching. I'm merely trying to mirror my own beliefs as authentically as I can. Uh, but I found that that mythological, we'll say cosmological worldview helped me understand in a way that I didn't before the nature of, of suffering on earth, the nature of why people do inexplicable things, where evil comes from, that it actually does have a root in a singular consciousness that that quite literally hates us and wants to cause us to suffer and uses us, uses ourselves against us to do that. And again, these are probably some of the heaviest topics that, these are the heaviest topics that we can get into, but that is the, that is the honest answer of where I think this all comes from. Um, there is a divine spirit within all of us that it moves towards the light, that craves the light, that can, that can imagine the light, feels it. We are drawn to these expressions of it in the beauty of nature or art or in plant medicines or cosmological visions to create and to flourish and to, have, to be happy and to feel love and joy in this divine way. And yet there's some other aspect of us that seems so 
against that that will cripple us and wound us from inside ourselves and outside ourselves. Where do these points come from? Well, if the divine in us comes from God, where does the dark in us come from? It must come from some other, some other equally, not equally, but similarly powerful being. But here's, here's the rub, and this gets back to the very nature of what we're talking about. The brilliance, the genius, and the beauty—the beauty, the beauty of, of the divine. I'll say divine to avoid the charge word God. But the beauty of the divine is that all this suffering that we're experiencing as humanity, as we said at the beginning, can be used to transform us into a higher state. That no matter what evil does to us, no matter what evil does to us, we can use it to transmute it and create a more complex and beautiful form of good that, may, that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And so even in the notion of the fall and creation, the redemption was there. And for me personally, I prefer to live in a universe of redemption where I was made better by suffering than if I had never suffered to begin with. And I found that so satisfying that that's the, that's the story of Christianity after a journey through all these traditions that here was a religion that was based on the notion of fall, suffering, and redemption. And I found such sustenance in that in my own development as a man and as an individual that I'm, I'm very proud to be able to have arrived on that stage of my journey after many years of seeking because redemption is one of the core themes of, of my own life that I very much treasured that I got to experience. And when I was properly introduced to Christianity in the right spirit, I said, oh, wow, I already know that. That's what I've been looking for. And so that was why, um, that's why I was baptized. And I'm very uh, proud to call myself, I guess you'd say, a Christian man. I don't like identifying my, myself in that way. Um, it never quite feels right, but I suppose it's true. And this is, I mean, this this archetype one finds all over the world. I mean, even in these shamanic traditions, they, you know, very much it's often seen as this battle between the light and the dark. And that the, these dark mm -hmm. forces are, they're very tempting. They're very seductive. They, they I mean, I guess that's like the, the story of the snake in Christianity is it's seductive. There, there, there's a temptation yeah. there. And even even in, in a shamanic way of, of looking at things, you know, and again, there's no inherent, I guess, truth that we could say. It's, it's relative to everyone has their own experience. But sure. this idea that, that the black magic is, it's not even inherently, like it's not... From from how I understand it, to to reach the highest level of a curandero, you know, one who really has power, one who really serves the light, that can't be avoided, because it's seen that that's an inherent part of existence of of the the world and the universe that we live in, and so actually there has to be a going into it, there has to be a mastery of it. Uh, in Spanish, sometimes mm -hmm. they'll use the word dominar. Like we, we have to be able to control that, to understand mm -hmm. it, so that all of our actions can be from a place of light. But if we avoid it, then we're actually we're we're under the effect of it because we haven't mastered it, we haven't gone into it, mm -hmm. and it's it's almost this constant battle between the light and the dark. And then mm -hmm. I think, you know, so many of these esoteric traditions, and I think Christianity, as you very beautifully explained, it's trying to imbue us or it's trying to give us these tools to, to see that, to recognize that so that we can overcome that. But if we don't, mm -hmm. if we don't see that, if we don't, if we don't confront that in a way, 
then ultimately we're subject to that. It, mm-hmm. it, it has power over us rather than than the other way. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you said it very beautifully, but, you know, I think all of these these traditions are trying to find some way where we have to confront that because, you mm-hmm. know, whether those forces are outside or inside of us, if we don't, if we don't see those and if we don't name them, and I think that's also very important. It, it, it's a really interesting phenomenon you see a lot in these shamanic practices is actually naming these things. Mm-hmm. Because without naming them, we're not recognizing them. We're not bringing them into existence. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's kind of like this thing that's, that, that can affect us, you know, and <clears throat> even, even again, in, in a lot of this kind of shamanic language, uh, you know, Shipibo, who I work with, or Mestizo, many people, they will describe certain ailments as a demon, or that's a heavy energy, or, mm-hmm. but the, the way they're saying it is that that's something that has power over you. It's mm-hmm. infected you. It's almost like a parasite. Mm-hmm. And unless we, unless we, we see this, we recognize it, we name it, and then we clean and clear it, we're subject to that. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's a destructive force, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe some of us recognize those things within or without, and, and maybe we're oblivious to them. But I think that's one of the real powers of, of any of these traditions is being able to really to see that, to recognize that, to name that. Mm-hmm. And that's where our power comes from, right, is, is, is naming that, seeing that, and then making the choice to, to overcome that. Mm-hmm. And, um, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's kind of the archetypical hero's journey too, right? Is, yes. Is that very story. Very much so. Very much so. And I love what you said about naming, that unless until we name a thing and carve it out from the things around it, we actually have this, abil- this inability to perceive it. You know, we, we give a thing to a name, we separate it, we say this, you know, we're talking about uh, unity, right? There, like this, not that. We have to disintegrate a thing in a way to be able to see it, to carve it out of the rock and look at it. And then there needs to be the reintegration of putting it back into a sense of context so we don't overly fixate it on it. And you mentioned um, this victim identity and victimhood, this mindset, I think comes from the authentic experience of, of one or more traumatic events without a sense to contextualize a sense of meaning to it and to say that this is an opportunity to recognize, to recognize and transform and, and be redeemed, even to redeem someone that I hate. Someone did something terrible to me and I'm unable to forgive. And, and, and certainly, you know, I've had my own share of those things. So, but the ability to descend in the depths and find the capacity to forgive and understand the nature of that suffering that I experienced and then come back and bring that back to humanity, to go through that redemptive cycle, that hero's journey, is what evolves us as a soul and as a being. And people who, don't, who maintain their victim, their victim mindset, the person that they're harming the most is themselves. That's the, that's the hardest thing to see, is that they've, they have, I, they've, this experience has happened and they build a shrine to it rather than saying, rather than approaching it as a door that they can go into of redemption and, and transformation and, and improvement. And that's, that's, the hardest, that's the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing. And what, and what makes it worse is you talk about these demons and these heavy energies, these beings that exist on a higher level, not, you know, we talked about the spiritual dimension to reality, for example, at the start of our conversation. Um, not everything that exists on this higher plane of reality, just like not everything that exists on any plane of reality, is our friend. 
Ayahuasca is our friend, you know, our ally, plant ally is referred to, and you are my ally, and certainly we all have many allies, but there are people on this level of reality that are not our friend. There are animals, we have dogs that are our friends, and there are other animals that are not our friends. So all the way up the chain of being, except the unity consciousness, I suppose, there are things that are not our friends. And during my experiences of ayahuasca at the temple over the course of seven days, I got a really nice view of the different levels of paraticism that exist in the energetic realm of things that feed on the energy that we're all just kind of leaking as disintegrated beings. And when we adopt this victimhood mentality, we are leaking energy because we're disintegrated in a way. And other beings and other planes of reality can come in and begin feeding on that. They be, because they draw, they draw their sustenance from it. For some of them, you know, for some of these beings that I've seen, it's just an unconscious thing. Like if you were imagine a, a heat vent at the bottom of the ocean, there are, there are beings that are just attracted to the heat vent because it's warm there, not out, out of instinct. But then there are other beings that are actually attracted to things consciously and they feed off of it and they begin injecting what you might say is spiritual poison to draw out more energy. And this is the trap that so many people have fallen into as they become food sources for these other beings that make their suffering worse and they, they make it less and less likely that they're able to engage in this redemptive, this redemptive cycle of transformation. And we see that, especially over the course of the past year. We all carry trauma, all of us. That's, a, it's a, that's part of the ticket to come into earth, says on the back of the ticket, you will experience trauma. That doesn't necessarily, maybe you'll experience trauma that was conscious and that someone inflicted on you. And I'm dreadfully sorry for that. I am. And I, I know that feeling. And there are also times that we'll experience trauma where it's no one's fault, where it's just part of being a child psychology in a world of adults and overwhelming things. Nonetheless, it is our responsibility to heal that and transform it and grow strong from it. And that is the notion of the spiritual warrior is to go within and to fight that battle and to come back and then to go within and to fight that battle and to come back and to grow strong in the same way I go to the gym and I lift a heavy weight. When I go to my ayahuasca retreat or my ceremony, I'm lifting a heavy spiritual weight. I'm, I have help from the facilitators, from the curanderos, from the medicine themselves, from plant allies, helping me to lift this spiritual weight and to see it and to look at it and to understand why it's come into my life and then to release it and to be free of it. And then that makes me stronger and able to give these gifts back. And I, 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 love, I love the medicine because I love the medicine at the temple. Let me be really clear about that. The medicine experienced in the wrong environment, I always tell people, only work with a place that's been personally recommended. Don't just find something on the internet you know that that some that someone wrote about in an article only go to a place that has been personally recommended by someone that you know and trust period because the risk is too great because you're having spiritual surgery and who's going to be the who's the facilitator who's the operating surgeon do you know their intention do you know their outlook do you know their skill uh, you know, and the temple has the the best environment and the best people for, for doing this kind of work in the safest way possible, and really facilitates you to do and facilitated me to do the best work, the best work possible. And the other thing is to feel a call to it. And this is, you know, we taught we started out at the beginning talking about Joe Rogan and Ari Marcus and the Economist. And one of the things that I think is a great tragedy about ayahuasca right now is that it's so heavily popularized. There's a sense of curiosity, and as I say, curiosity kills the cat. 
You know, <laughs> you can definitely get way more than you bargained for if you're just experiencing this out of a sense of curiosity. You have to feel a genuine call to it. Like, no, this is, this is something I have to do. That's number one, feel a genuine call to it. And number two is only work with a place that's been personally recommended by someone that you know and trust. Those are my iron, my iron rules for it, what I tell everyone about it. If you meet those two characteristics, by all means, go with my blessing. Go to the temple of the way of light with my blessing and Jason's blessing, and I'm sure many, many others as well. Um, and I say that because you, you also mentioned um, people feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start. And that can be very challenging, that there's a wealth of spiritual information uh, out there that has never existed in the public eye in terms of human history, where to begin. And it seems like this is, this meditation is popular and then this app, and then this, you know, this speaker has a Ted talk and then there's this book to read. And it's like, where do I even begin? It's like, well, you have to go in the direction that you feel called in. And the reason to do that is to engage in this redemptive cycle that I talked about. And it doesn't have to be the deep dive into a 12-day ayahuasca workshop, which is, you know, turn it. I mean, you can be if you feel called to it, but it can be as simple as meditating for a few minutes every day and to begin to bring up these traumas that we've all experienced and reckon with them and, and, and grow strong for them and release them and let them go and grow stronger and then engage in that process. And because I did that at the temple, because I did that in all the self-work that I had done for those many years leading up to my travels, and because I did it continually while traveling, through the process of traveling, I came back to the United States, went into lockdown world, immediately sought out, sought out to rectify all the things in my life that I hadn't addressed. So I left New Zealand. I was living there for a while in a relationship. The relationship didn't work out. And in the process of the relationship not working out, I put on quite a bit of weight because was, I was grieving the end of this relationship. I got back, went into lockdown world, and immediately set about losing 40 pounds just in my apartment alone. Didn't know anyone. New city, lockdown world, no furniture, I got, but I got to sort this out. And when I completed that process, I began speaking the truths, some of the truths that you have heard me saying today about travel, about the world, about, about diversity, about integrity, uh, and really integrating who I am as a man. And I found that I spoke those out loud and they resonated into this environment that I had found myself in. I was like, oh, wow, people actually want to hear what I have to say. And I have plenty of things to say and they want to hear them. And so that's what led to the founding of the Renaissance of Men, of recognizing that I have had my unique journey. I've been on my own hero's journey, several one meta-hero's journey and several smaller ones within that because it is fractal in that way. And having, as, as a man who's completed my hero's journey as a man to, as I said with the, the temple, come into contact with my own masculinity, my own presence as a man, my sexual desire, my virility, my strength that I had cut myself off from, like, you know, literally cut myself off at the waist, essentially, to come into contact and feel that power and to recognize that we live in a, in a state where men are uniquely, dis, many men are uniquely disintegrated. And to have put those two halves together in myself, I recognize that I have the ability to help other men do that for themselves. And I live my life as a man. I am a man. I am in a, I'm in a male body. Uh, and, and I will never experience being a woman. And, and I've read some compelling things lately that men don't actually have a feminine side. Men have a masculine side. They have feminine qualities, but not a feminine side. And we can talk about that separately. But all these things have led me to realize and feel that I can help other men struggling with the same issues because I walk down this road. And so that's the foundation of my brand of recognizing 
that I can, as I have been through my own renaissance, literally meaning rebirth, my own rebirth into the world and, and a rediscovering a, 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 a restoration of masculinity within myself, that's going on around the world with so many different male leaders taking different angles on it from fitness to, um, to uh, career aspects to romance and dating. There are men who you know, look into ancient cultures like ancient Japan and ancient Greece, some men who look to you know, the Spartans, etc. All these men trying around the world to explore what masculinity is in an age where men are disintegrated. And so my interest as a man who's traveled the world and been through these so many different cultures, I'm able to see them all as one holistic thing. And so the Renaissance is this holistic thing. So that's the term that I came up with to describe this holistic thing. I, it's, I, you know, I'm, not the, I'm not the guy leading it. There is no leader of it. The Renaissance of Men is just a term to describe this process we're living through, that I've lived through, and that we're living through as men to give a rebirth to what it means to be a masculine man. Mm-hmm. That was all the things. <laughs> so, what are what are what are some of the things that that you feel that 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 you see that men seem to be lacking or they're not connected with? That, you know, things that that you feel because I, I think I think more and more people are realizing that you know it's this very tricky thing where we're living in a society where. Again, we're talking about diversity, we're talking about differences, but then also there's, there's almost this sense of all of these things are fictional in a way, or they're all gender, they're all created by society, that, you know, in essence, people are all the, the same, that men are the same, women are the same, but obviously that's not true. Right. <laughs> and, and again, right. that's going to trigger people, but that's just biologically not true. Uh, I right. mean, and it, and it goes back to any of the teachings of any of these spiritual traditions is there's duality, there's, there's day and night, there's light and dark, there's man and woman, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's the, the, the phallus and the yoni that, I mean, mm-hmm. you go to India, that's one of the, the, the amazing things is there's a very clear recognition that there's these two forces and they're complementary, and that when you join mm-hmm. those forces, you get creation. There that's literally right. is no creation without those two forces. Mm-hmm. So, what is it? What is it that you see that that you feel that that somehow? Because I, you know, I think again, there's a, maybe a growing awareness of this, although still maybe not on a on a, on a large scale. But I, I think mm-hmm. certainly, you know. In the U.S. and in, in the past decades, certainly, I think for women, there's there's a realization of you know what does it mean to be a woman, and and that's really been talked about, and you know what does it mean to to, to be equal on certain levels? What does it mean to be mm-hmm. different? What do we want out of life? What you know, and 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 I think even now that's that's a really big issue. You know, what does it mean yeah. to be you know? But I think it's much less talked about for a man, but I think yeah. it's becoming much more talked about. So what are the things that, 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 that maybe you see through, through this work you're doing that, that are issues that, that men are dealing with that, that maybe we're not addressing or that the people don't understand are actually important? You know, like I'll give one example. So a friend yeah. of mine sent, sent me an article uh, a few days ago that, you know, in the past uh, number of decades, male testosterone has been decreasing at a pretty steady rate. Mm -hmm. And that's something that that probably most people don't know. 
And right. I would even venture to say most people probably don't even think is that big of a deal. <laughs> probably think it's anything, a good thing. You know, probably some people would argue that's a good thing, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're becoming less masculine. Right. But I mean, even, even on a physical level, there are detrimental health consequences when that happens. You know, they, they may be minor now if it's only a 1% drop or a 2% drop, but if it keeps going at that rate, which it is, there are very detrimental health consequences that, mm -hmm. that, that happen with that. So, you know, that to me, for example, seems like something that, that does need to be addressed. It needs to be talked about. You know, why mm -hmm. is that important? Why is testosterone important? What happens when that begins to decrease? And, mm -hmm. and what is causing that? You know, and, right. and again, this article surmised, you know, a number of things, but the reality is it's happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I take sort of a unique approach to this. And, and uh, I look at the situation of men and male psychology right now um, as being broken in half. And that shows up in a couple different ways. On one hand, you have the real, the sensitive new age guy, you might say, who are very nice and soft-spoken and, oh, namaste, and, you know, don't, not really passionate or fiery, but they're very kind. They're good boyfriends or partners. Maybe they're more or less, you know, good dads, but they, they lack a certain spirit and spark and, 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 and energy and presence in life. But they're very, they're very nice. They're very nice is what can be said about them. That's one half of male psychology. The other half of male psychology is you have these really hard-charging, dedicated, high testosterone. I mean, not, maybe not necessarily high testosterone in that way, but like you know, macho kind of guys who are very armored and not sensitive at all. And my, from my, and this has been my experience of just navigating through the world of men. And it's usually I'll meet a guy will be one or the other, depending on what circumstance you come from. And when I talk to women about this, they validate that. They validate that in their dating lives because they will, they will date some uh, asshole for a while who's really exciting and, and really passionate and high energy, but then that relationship won't work out. And then they'll go date this guy who's really, really nice and kind, but that relationship has no excitement or thrill to it. And so they'll, then they'll date and they'll, go, they'll, date, they'll bounce back and forth and women naturally draw this conclusion like, if this is all men are, men are shit. I'll be the man, right? Okay, so what they're looking at really, is they're looking at male psychology that's been shattered, that's literally been broken in half over the course of about 140 years, beginning with the Industrial Revolution. Just really quickly, just to think about men used to grow up in the, in the uh, boys used to grow up in the presence of their fathers. You're going to learn a trade out in the fields or in the, in the forge or whatever, and, be, and have direct one-to-one -one contact with their dad all through their young adulthood and then into their adulthood. The, the teachings of masculinity were passed on to men. With the Industrial Revolution, men were taken out of the home and were sent into factories, divided from their sons. So that was the first, And then sons are put into public schools, which are primarily taught by women, and so that chain gets broken. And then over the course of the 20th century, we had World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, Vietnam, the Iraq Wars, and then a lot of propaganda about being a man that first, the First World Wars... Who goes off to war? The best and brightest. The noblest men go off to war and get blown to bits. And the ones who survive come back shell-shocked. 
and they, we don't have the notions of inner healing that now they didn't have them back then. You come back from World War One and you're World War Two and you're shell shocked, like, well, like, suck it up and deal with it. Or you go to Vietnam and you experience these things. So you see the end product of that over 140 years, and there's more detail I could go into, but just to accelerate it, has fractured the male psyche, and it began before us. My dad didn't teach me what it is to be a man. He didn't get it from his dad either. Somewhere that chain of, of integrity, high integrity, authentic masculinity got broken. And different men respond to that in different ways. If you are like me and you gravitate more towards your mother for, for my own uh, internal temperament perhaps and also my upbringing, I became the nice guy. And I detected a sense of a lack of passion and drive and fire and sexuality, masculine sexuality in myself that I had consciously divided myself from, which is why I went to the temple, right? On the other side, you have men that more gravitate perhaps to their fathers or to team sports or something like that. And they become very, very armored and not in touch with their not in touch with their emotional side let's say or their emotions or their or their fluid their fluidity or their flow and so those are the two halves of men we have uh, those are actually not two different kinds of men that's one man who's been shattered in half and so we have to knit them back together and so as you look at the as you look at the circumstances of men in the world and you see you know one guy behaves this way and that guy behaves another way that is not a whole man that is a disintegrated man who is isolated from one set of his self and so i came down to the temple and i engaged in the process of travel because i particularly going to the temple actually because i knew i needed to integrate with my sense of passion and fire and masculinity and sexual desire and drive but that's a fundamental part of being human and i had so fully shamed out of myself for all different reasons. You know, part of it related to my upbringing and part of it related to propaganda and culture. I had driven that as far down into myself and cut it, itself, cut it off for propagandistic reasons. I'm like, no, I need this because my life is suffering as a result. I'm not seeing, I'm not living the life that I want to lead. I'm cut off from myself. And so I went into the temple with that intention to heal that wound in myself. And I remember um, before I was able to sit in the consultation with you and the, and the curanderos and the curandeas where I actually talk about what my intention is, it was like a couple ceremonies in, like we got through like ceremony two before we had that initial con- consultation. I remember they, I expressed this intention and um, who was your co-facilitator? I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. <laughs> How did she look like? Because I, I can't remember who she had cur- short curly hair. Black hair? Uh, no, short curly, short curly red hair. Anyway, your co-facilitator, she translated for me. From, from that? Spain? Irene, maybe from Spain? No, no, she was, uh, she was British, I think. Hmm. Anyway, I'll get back on my story. We'll, we'll still, I don't know, anyway, so I, I, I managed not to derail myself, but so she was maybe, translating maybe, maybe for me Debbie, and the current... Was it Debbie? Debbie, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. It was Debbie, yeah. She was translating for me, and um, and I remember the they, they they were the curanderos were talking amongst themselves, and they talked to Debbie, and Debbie said, "Where were you? Where were you lying in the um, in the uh, in the room?" And I pointed over. They said, "Oh yeah, we've seen what you're talking about. It looks like a yucca plant embodied in you somehow, and we've all been able to see it, and we've gone around the circle singing our ikaros at you, and we've been hacking at the roots of the yucca plant." 
this idea that the trauma in me ran so deeply that they could see it energetically in my body. And I guess a yucca plant is this thing with very deep, stiff roots, you know, that's very difficult. You can't just rip it out. So they, they, this is what they actually said. They were hacking at the roots of it as they would come through and sing the Icaros so that it could be pulled out. So the root, could, so the plant itself, the trauma could be pulled out. And I thought that was just incredible because it ran that deeply. That's how deeply divided from myself that I was. And over the course of the seven, seven ceremonies, I held that image in mind as some very disorienting and very difficult times and, you know, the spin of the whole thing and, and recognizing that how necessary, how necessary it is to feel because I, I noticed in myself this tendency to pop in, into my head and to be talking into my head and be like, no, no, stay in the body and as hard as it is, feel just feel it and don't think. Don't think in words. And recognizing that, that that was like driving a car that, you know, if if I just take my foot off the gas, the car will roll forward and that's in the, the disoriented talking to myself state. But if I could stay grounded in my body, that was like putting my hands on the wheel and putting my foot on the gas and driving the car forward. And I remember that doing that for the fourth, fifth, sixth, uh, sixth and seventh ceremony and getting where I wanted to get. And the climactic moment of my whole, my whole workshop was at the end of the sixth ceremony with Maestro Romulo. He came around, and I guess I was the last Ikaro of the night. And he was, sing- he was singing over me and standing up. And I remember him singing in this way that sounded like he was a rock star standing at the front of a stage singing to thousands of people. I had this image of like Bono singing, just wailing. I never heard him sing like that before, just not howling, but just full-throated, really letting go and celebrating life. And just like, I even got out my lighter and I tried to hold up my lighter like you would at a concert because I was so moved by this experience of like seeing with this rock star and I can see it in my eyes and it sounded like a warrior coming home. And it was just the most meaningful moments of my life to have recognized that I made it. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, that's the, I don't have words for it, except to say that's the kind of work that's possible, you know, within, uh, with intention and really stick with your intent. And I did it. And I, I did the work. And um, I remember at the, at the seventh, the seventh ceremony, one of the maestras, she came around and she was singing to me in this very delicate way where it felt like she was just very carefully bandaging up, you know, this open wound from a surgery that had been successful. And then just, you know, like she just put a little flower on it very gently and just walked away. And, uh, you know, I got to, I got to carry that forward in my life. And I went back into the world and my whole, my whole life changed as a result of that. And I found that the world began responding to me differently outside of my conscious awareness. I, I, I found that women began responding to me differently and I couldn't figure it out. Like, what was going on? Like, suddenly all these women are, are attracted to me and I couldn't feel like, what's going on? It's like, I was vibrating on such a different energetic level that my mind hadn't caught up to the rest of me. And so then it was a process of integrating that. But from that, and from other work that I've done with organizations like the Mankind Project, I've recognized how divided from themselves men are. 
and particularly from myself, how divided I was as a quote-unquote nice guy, which is the thinking that I, you know, that I should be ashamed of being a man, that I'm terrible for being a man and it's my fault for everything. This is the guilt and shame we're talking about. I'm recognizing that, no, my sexual desire, my appreciation for women and my honoring for women, you know, and, and my desire for them is good and true, and that's what propagates creation. And that it's good to feel that. Like, of course, we can all take it too far, obviously, but we live in a hypersexualized culture that doesn't teach us how to wield that power anyway, you know what I mean? So we get to learn to do that on our own. But this idea, I had shamed a whole part of myself out of existence and almost out of existence and through the temple, I was able to bring it back, create a renaissance, resurrect it was, I mean, <laughs> it's just, that's just one of the great blessings of my life. And so I, I, I carry that forward now with all my, my travels and all the things that I've done and, and, and look, at my, look at men and look at my brothers and say, I see you. I see you and there is, a, there is a better world and a better life for you that's waiting inside you. And I can show you that I'm an example, an example, not the example, an example of how to get there. And I can show you the way for all of us to be better men, the kind of men that women want and the kind of men that we want to be. And I discovered as I, as I continued traveling on from there that there is a world of men grappling with this very same question. There are thousands of writers, YouTubers, content creators, Twitter leaders, fitness gurus, you know, philosophers, graphic artists, filmmakers, some of them, that are all grappling this little question of what does it mean to be an, a high-integrity, integral man today? Organizations, retreats, asking this exact question. And having traveled the world and experienced different cultures and see all their one, I came back and said, I have something to say to this world, and I want to tell all these guys, you all don't see yourself as the same thing. You're all the same thing. We're all asking this question together. And if I'm any example, and I'm not the only example, but if I'm any example, it's happening, and it's a linear process. There's no going back in the box. We're moving forward to forging an amazing new definition of masculinity that's rooted in the past of how things used to be, man and woman, whole, complementary, balanced. We're recreating that because for the past 100 years, 150 years, we've lived in this incredibly out-of-balance state where what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It all just means the same thing, make money. Like, that's it. That's it. You know, it's like, well, no, no. All this material prosperity, which we've talked about, hasn't led to happiness. We need to rediscover spiritual wealth. And the rediscovery of spiritual wealth is discovering our inner natures as men and women and then coming back together. So as you say, women are asking questions about what it means to be a woman. I see the renaissance of men and the renaissance of women, which are both happening. I see what's happening at the back end of that, at the end of that, to be what I call it the great reconciliation. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That's, and that's coming. And that's coming. And that's my faith about the better world that we're going to, is a real reconciliation between men and women coming together as complementary, as complementary equals of equal power and divinity, pushing back on, as my, as my friend Jack Donovan says, the empire of nothing. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. I'm glad I got to tell that story. Yeah. I mean... It, you know, I, I was reading the other day that, that in, uh, for example, I, I was a Boy Scout. I, I, I became an Eagle Scout, and, and that was a really formative time for me. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. taught me a lot. And recently, I don't know if you're familiar, but the Boy Scouts now is obliged to allow girls in. Um, but Girl Scouts isn't obliged to allow boys in. Right. So, 
you know, it, it's this it's this interesting thing. And again, I can understand where they're coming from, but I think the loss of that is again this recognition of having these spaces for again this duality, this recognition that that everything you know is not inherently equal that there are differences and to have a space you know for for a young man for a boy to have this space mm-hmm. to be able to learn things about you know what it is to be a boy what it is to be a man in in many i would say probably all indigenous cultures there there was that there was the hunt or there was the the initiation or for the women there was the women's circle the 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 the, the aligning their their menstrual cycles and having that as a ceremony and you know there was something beautiful about that and <clears throat> you know honoring that there was these differences and these inherent powers and these these beautiful qualities that we all carry so is that is that maybe part of what you're doing is just trying to create a space again to to allow these qualities to to emphasize like what is important in being a man like mm-hmm. that th- there are differences and and how do we cultivate that which I think you said is really important you know it's not yes. to shift the balance it's it's to make the man integral you know to be a whole mm-hmm. being. but That's to right. do that we also have to recognize that that you know there is a split and then how do we how do we help to to aid that person to become a whole person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that's something that i'm doing and, and one of the things that really continued my inner work was this organization called the mankind project where i went through an actual initiation of the sort that you're talking about and that was in 2013 and it was a weekend men's initiation where it's a 48-hour experience where you know you go through a number of processes and one meta process one hero's journey where you Come out of the other of the other end, where you know for a fact that you have been initiated and you are now a man. You have crossed an unrecrossable bridge, and there is a definite shift that has that has taken place. And seventy five thousand men around the world have gone on this retreat, and you can find them at uh, the Mankind Project. I think it's mkp.org. In fact, I had the communications and marketing director on my podcast last week, and that one will be out tomorrow, actually. But that's been an organization that showed me firsthand the need for male spaces, for male initiation as something that we've lost in Western culture for hundreds of years. This predates the predates the, uh, the Industrial Revolution because uh, for thousands of years, as you say, the tribes used to send, you know, when, boy, when the generation of boys would become the right age, 12, 13, and hit puberty, the fathers would come for them, take them from their mothers, and take them out into the forest to take them on a vision quest. And the boys who passed the test, or sometimes even the boys who survived, came back and were now ready to begin assuming the responsibilities of a man. They were no longer boys. Um, maybe they had to draw on some inner strength to survive, and that's usually the case, is they had to draw on some strength from deep within them and probably to their gods to get through the ordeal that they were put through. And once you draw on that strength and you realize you have access to it as a young boy, you can put that forward for the benefit of the tribe. Those rituals have been removed from Western culture, God knows, hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Maybe they were preserved in some smaller way in, in local and in localities in Europe, it certainly doesn't exist in the United States. Like you, maybe you join a fraternity or you join a, the military, you know, you go through boot camp and maybe that's a form of initiation, but an actual formal spiritual initiation doesn't exist. But because we as a species grew up with that initiation as men, I believe there's like a biopsychological switch that exists in the back of our brains. And now today, in most men, this switch is left unflipped. It's but they so it's the, the, in some way, some fundamental way, they're still 
a boy psychology, something incomplete, but they're driving adult male bodies. And so you get this you get this element where you've got, you know, boys in one way, the nice guy boys in one way driving adult male bodies that are very passive and very weak, and then you have boys in this other way that are kind of more aggressive driving adult male bodies and they're they're too aggressive. And I, I attribute that to the lack of the flipped switch. And when you take a man and you put him through an initiation, a proper initiation, you flip that switch and suddenly you have male authentic male psychology, a men's psychology, masculine psychology driving an adult male body. And then the, the the possibilities, the possibilities are, are limitless. And that is what I'm trying to create. And I do believe men need that space. And I'm, I think there's also been aspects in culture that have driven men away from each other. I think there are words like bromance, which is, you know, two men can say, hey, I love you, bro, and not have it be sexualized. But if where bromance kind of cheapens male relationships or makes, you know, any, any authentic love between two men is immediately called suspicious of being homosexual or having a sexual component. It's like that is designed to divide men from each other. Because when men come together and start talking and have their own spaces and are able to share experiences, they grow stronger together and they can, they can push back on oppression, tyranny, propaganda. And that is the one thing that we can't have right now. So we see an, an, an actual attempt to shame men away from each other. It happens through the media. You look at the, the bumbling dad archetype on sitcoms like Everybody Loves Raymond or Homer Simpson, you know, the bumbling dad who does everything wrong and the mom's always got to clean up. And then you... And you look at the movies now and you see Star Wars, where the, the most recent Star Wars trilogy, which I won't even get into how bad it was, but you know, you have Ray does everything without any help and defeats all the all the men. And you look at Star Trek with John Luke Picard fucking hubris, you know, and Luke Skywalker being destroyed as a hero. There's a assault, assault on positive masculine archetypes to create weak men. And you talked about the declining testosterone levels in men. That is also as a result of environmental pollutants. Uh, I think as a result of, of plastics, perhaps electromagnetic radiation. You were saturated by it all the time from Wi-Fi. Well, at least here in major city, Wi-Fi fields and you know, and cell phones and stuff like that. And I think that has a deleterious effect, as you say. Diet, you know, processed foods, lack of physical fitness and exercise, sunlight. You know, as men are having to decline testosterone in that way. And it's all designed to weaken men because strong and integrated men push back, push back on, on tyranny. And you have to do that. You have to do that first. And again, we've had 140 years of weak men and the renaissance of men and the, the, in terms of the totality of the process is working to create strong, independent, high integrity men who are dedicated to being better husbands, fathers, and propagators of the next generation. And that will be controversial to people who have internalized, we'll say, feminist ideas, who believe that you know men are eternal oppressors and should be subjugated to women, that maybe instead of a patriarchy, um, which there are plenty of books that debunk that notion as existing, but that instead of a patriarchy, maybe we need a ma- matriarchy. And so now, you know, for years, we had big brother, big brother state was everyone's worried about, but we're actually getting this big mother, big mother state. Everyone needs to be coddled and safe and be isolated from each other and cover your face. And don't worry, we'll provide everything you need. That's a mother energy that suppresses everybody universally. And masculine energy is needed to push back on that. Of course, taken too far. You get things like 
empire and colonialism and all of that. That's not the kind, of, and, and men suffer under that as well. That's not the kind of thing that men are working today to build. They want to be, they want their own independent communities, as you say, to live, exist, and be, and be free and determine their own values in a high integrity way for their communities. And that's, that's what I'm describing, and that's what I'm hoping to, to contribute to. And I'm very blessed to know thousands of men personally who are doing this work, and to know for a fact there are millions of men around the world that are doing this work and are succeeding at it. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of because when it is successful, when it is successful, it will create space for women to rediscover their femininity, to rediscover their unique grace. Women have a quality that men generally don't have, which is grace. The ability to channel intuitively beauty and elegance and to light up a room. No one ever says about a man, like when he walks in, he lights up a room. Like an integrated woman, when she walks in, any integrated woman, when she walks in, lights up a room. And everyone responds to this. This is a power that's unique to women. And men creating space, creating boundaries of safety and protection and integrity, create space for women to come in and channel these divine energies, which is the story for all of human history. Like the, the, the goddess in the temple, like Greek society was very masculine, but the goddess of the temple, uh, know thyself, that was a woman because they recognized that women have intuitive gifts that men don't have or that men largely don't have. Like any man can, can cultivate his intuitive gifts, but women have this particular grace. And Athena Nike, if you look in the Louvre, there's a, there's a statue of this winged figure that everyone's seen. The Greeks represented victory as a woman. Like, so this idea that male and female live in balance, and when they're both enabled to be their most divine forms of themselves, real beauty is created on earth. And that's why I'm hoping for the great reconciliation. So, you know, a lot of men, a lot of men and a lot of women will look at this movement of men and say it's, you know, anti-woman and anti-girl. It couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. The furthest thing from the truth. Real, integrated, authentic men love women and appreciate appreciate and value women. And I'm very, very grateful. And if that weren't the case, I wouldn't be a part of it because I've come to appreciate women through my own travels and my own experiences of, of getting to know and, and fall in love and get close to many, many of them over time and many of whom are still very close to my heart. And to see that men and women have their own struggles and that the real beauty is in the, in the moment when we come together and really see each other for who we are something really special is going to be created. And that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, great, man. I think that's, that's a beautiful way to end it. Um, maybe actually one other question, because I think this is something that, that comes up too, is sometimes, you know, because you're, you're talking about these, these kind of archetypical differences between men and women, what would you say to, to, to the man who feels like he doesn't, connect to men that that he feels like he embodies more of those feminine qualities and and again this can be subjective to to how we define those but but i think there are you know certain men who feel like they feel a disconnect they they feel that you know instead of going in the initiation they they want to do something else they they want to hang with the women or they they want to do something that maybe in a traditional society would be more under the, the 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 feminine qualities, whether that's weaving a basket or you know gardening, whatever that is, they feel drawn to that. And so I, I think there's there's some men who maybe feel resistance to to wanting to do that because they feel more drawn to those other qualities. Do you think it's still important that that they have these initiatory experiences, that they learn what it is to be a man, so that they still hold that power? 
but then still in our difference, they can still do what they feel called to do, but they can do it in a more integral way. Or is mm -hmm. it just, there are certain people who are just different and that's, that's the way of it as well. I would say uh, I was very disintegrated from my body. And I think there is, I think it, we can probably agree that in various ways, all members of Western society and the world today who haven't done the work are disintegrated from their bodies. I believe society, our civilization, Western culture in particular, well, it's not Western culture, it's consumerist culture. Western culture got eaten by consumerist culture and we're, we're bringing it back, so we'll call it consumerist culture. Consumerist culture is designed to divide us from the intuitive knowing of our bodies. And the further that it can divide us from the intuitive knowing of our bodies, because our bodies are incapable of lying. Our heads lie. Our heads are really able to lie. Our hearts, our hearts can be our greatest ally or also a traitor to us, depending on how integrated our heart is. Our body is incapable of lying. Our body knows the truth. And so I believe that society now has, has the goal of disintegrating us from our body, so we are divided from our most pure way of knowing the truth. And so the best way that I have found for a man to get, uh, this has been my experience, other men may have other roots, but this has been mine, is through initiation. Because through initiation, through, and there are many ways, there are many roads to initiation. The Mankind Project is one of them, and that's the one that I found is the most effective process. That's not to say there aren't more, but that's a very effective process that they've been doing for 35 years. So they've refined it down to a, a polished shine, is to say, through this process, I will, will be forced to go into my body, to go deeper into my body than I've ever gone, and to find what's really in there and to find what's true. And I will find what's true or not. And because I have to, to get through this experience, I have to find the truth. I have to stand on the truth to get through it. Uh, and it's a very, when I say it's very safe, there's no one that gets physically harmed, you know, on the Mankind Project I'm speaking about. You know, there, there are physical challenges, but they're ones that anyone can do. The ability to go within and to find the truth, to pass through the initiation, and, and the, way, the way they bring about that process is, is beautiful, and I believe in it wholeheartedly. But nonetheless, in this initiation, you have to go within yourself to find the truth. And if you find that truth when you're successful in finding the truth, then everything else flows from that place of truth. And if in that moment, as you say, if, you want, if you're into weaving a basket, or if you're into cooking, or if you're into things that may be traditionally considered considered about feminine roles, then go do those things if you still feel called to them. But if you're doing it from a place of fear, if you're like, well, I'm afraid of men, so I'm going to hang out with the women, that's not an authentic place. If, so you have to confront that fear. As Jordan Peterson says, go into the part of the woods that seems darkest to you. That's the, the King Arthur myth. So you go into that fear, you go and confront that, and you will find the truth. And then you can bring that truth to your basket weaving, and you'll make better baskets or cook better food than ever before. Or you may discover that you were doing those things for an inauthentic reason, and there's something else you feel called to do, a new adventure to go on. So I would say to men who are hesitant to do it, to really ask yourselves, and really, really be honest with yourselves. If you're doing something that you feel more comfortable being around the women, why are you doing that? Are you doing it out of fear? And do you really know the alternative? Have you been courageous and brave enough to go in this environment and find out for yourself what the alternative is? And the safest, 
environment that I can possibly uh, that I can possibly tell you exists, a safest male environment. And, and my podcast with uh, Boyce and Hodgson of the Mankind Project will be coming out tomorrow, and you can listen to the way that he speaks about it. And he's the communications and marketing director for the whole company worldwide. And you can listen to the way that he speaks about it and see if you feel right, if you, if it, see if it feels right for you. And that could be a path to discover your authentic masculinity and whether you're living it or whether you're avoiding it. And that's something that you have to be honest with for yourself, whether that's true. And, and there are many, many, many men that will be welcoming you into masculinity. And I can guarantee you that will be grateful to have you here. And any experience you may have had with men in the past that you don't feel like you resonate with, I can guarantee you there are millions of men that will welcome you in and be grateful that you're here and will welcome you as a brother. Well, great, man. We're, uh, we're coming up in four hours. I think this is now the, uh, the, the second to longest podcast I've done. I think one was four and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, actually, we, had to, we had to cut about halfway through to take a bathroom break. But is there anything else you wanted to, to touch on before we, we end this? No, I think I said it all. I mean, I'm just very grateful that you've given me the place to speak on the things that are most important and, and, and most personal to me and uh, that are the... F- fuel and fire of my life right now and uh, sorry someone just sounded like they just fell down in the apartment next door but the fuel and fire of my life right now I'm very grateful to have this space because these are the things I'm so incredibly passionate about and you know uh, I'm grateful that I got to tell my story at the time at the temple as well because it was one of the most formative experiences of my life and um, and you were a big part of that and, and the space that you held and the, and the grounded uh, values that you represented and very much embodied in being who you are contributed to that for me. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you and uh, I'm grateful to you for your contrib- continuing contributions to my life, and including giving me the space to, to speak and grow. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure. And uh, it, it's for me, it's beautiful just seeing people going through these processes, through, through as you said, these initiatory experiences. I, I, I think it's, it's so valuable for, for, for humanity to go through them. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's so much to gain and so much to learn and so much humility and, and just seeing your process. I mean, seeing someone who, who came with these things that, that you were working on and then emerging and, you know, merging into this really strong, grounded, clear, insightful man and person, it's, it, it's beautiful to watch. And I think what you're doing is beautiful and it, it's much needed. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that that this plant work takes is it takes a tremendous courage and you know what you're also doing and these things you're talking about i think that's a that's a manifestation of that same courage you know mm-hmm. <laughs> these okay. these topics that are important uh you know they're not everyone wants to talk about them not not everyone wants to put themselves out there because you know ideas that they kind of shake reality most people are afraid to talk about them because it feels much safer kind of retreating into our shell and being safe, creating distance. Uh, But these, these are super important things to talk about. And, and, and I think we, you know, if anything, we need many, many more voices talking about them and, and, and bringing more knowledge, more light, more experience. And so it's beautiful what you're doing. So uh, yeah, I hope you keep doing it. And um, (laughs) I feel like we could probably talk another four hours. So maybe we'll do (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, if, if people are interested in, in finding more about you or your work, uh, how, how, how can they go about doing that? Renaissance of Men, is there any other way? And, and where can they find that also? 
Yeah, so um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm active on Instagram with posts and, and a lot of stories. I have fun with the visual medium. That's at Ren of Men. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N. It's like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, Ren of Men. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Will underscore Ren of Men. And uh, my website is renofmen.com. And then you can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you listen, and you can find the Renaissance of Men podcast. And you can find it there. And I do one interview episode a week. And I also do an episode of where I read and interpret poetry. So I call it Poetry for Men, because I believe poetry is an art that has a lot to teach us about what it means to be men specifically. And so I just did my ninth episode where I'll, I'll read a poem, I'll give a bit of background about the artist, and then I'll read the poem, and then I'll interpret the poem, and then I'll read the poem again, and hopefully uh, we all walk away with a better understanding of what the poem is trying to say. And so I did one for Valentine's Day this week with uh, the poet John Donne and this poem, The Ecstasy, and I'm very proud with how that came out. So if you go look up the Renaissance of Men podcast, you can find my interviews and my poetry as well. Oh, beautiful, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been a pleasure, and I, I wish you all the best, and uh, I, I look forward to the next time because I, I, I'm pretty sure we can do another four hours. <laughs> I absolutely agree, Jason. Thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, if you made it through the full four hours, congratulations, good work. Um, I really enjoy talking to Will. He's a very interesting guy, has a lot of really interesting ways of, of viewing the world. And, uh, and I think he's really doing good work and talking about a lot of issues that are really important that we're facing in these days. Um, as always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help. Thank you very much to all the people who have supported. Patreon is a really good option. There's a link in the show notes and it's a subscription service. You can sign up for different tiers and with those you get uh, things in return. So it's a really nice way to give and also receive something back. Things like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material, um, extended footage, things like that. Um, also, there's the option to donate directly via PayPal. And if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube homepage, Universe Within Podcast homepage, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell and liking the video. That's a really big help in getting the show out to a bigger audience, helping with the algorithms, things like that. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a review and also subscribing to the show. So that's it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the following guests. I, I still need to figure out the order. Um, but as always, I hope to have some really interesting guests coming on. So thank you all for tuning in and I will see you on the next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.